Recorded live. Hello again, everybody. This is Pastor Visser from Covenant People's Ministry on Halloween 2012. And with me, like always, is Obadiah 118. How are you doing today, brother? G'day, Jeremy. I'm doing pretty fine. And g'day, listeners. Great to be with you once again. And as you said, Jeremy, it's All Hallows Eve there in the United States. Yes, it is, and there are people out uh, engaging in all manner of mischief and, and trick-or-treating and so forth, and this would be a great broadcast to discuss some of those elements. Yes, indeed. Uh, as I, I mentioned in a previous podcast, we don't celebrate uh, Halloween here. A couple of the um, supermarket chains have tried to get it up and running you know, so they can sell, sell a few more pieces of confectionery, but it's never taken off. So I've got a, quite a few questions I'd like to ask you about. Halloween, especially the, the trick-or-treating aspect of things. Oh, excellent, excellent. should prove to be quite interesting. And this will actually make the fourth broadcast that we have put out, or at least Covenant People's Ministry, uh, on Halloween. And the first one, I believe, was Sam Hain, Green Man of Death. And it's kind of ironic that we're going to come around and discuss some of the elements of the Celtic Sam Hain Festival as well. So that's going to be quite refreshing. Yes, because Halloween really has its origin among the Celts and, and the Druids, I believe, according to Strabo. Yeah, at least as far as the way we recognize it today. The interesting thing about All Hallows' Eve is the name itself is quite Christian because it's an abbreviated form of uh, uh, Hallows' Eve or Hallows' Even in the Scottish. And so basically, really, the only thing Christian about Halloween would uh, be the name, which is quite ironic in a lot of ways. Yes, well... It's- Kind of the same with Christmas. The only Christian thing about Christmas is the name. Yeah, exactly. And you've got to love it how, you know, when even there are these Christian festivals within Christendom and so forth, how the uh, enemies of Christ love to come along and capitalize on that and essentially turn it into what that is. And Halloween and Christmas both are uh, quite have become quite the consumer holidays. And I'm sure Hershey's and, and Reese's and a lot of those people have vested interest in that in this particular uh holiday quote unquote so so kids get a lot of hershey bars and things like that in their bags do they or do they just get cheap sort of you know bulk bought uh lollies or candy from from walmart well that really depends too actually because in certain places you know some of these people will hand out full-size candy bars, and that's always quite refreshing, you know. But for the most part, what it is is that mixed uh, mixed bags that you can get at Walmart and Kmart and so forth. And I'd say it's about 85% Tootsie Rolls and Tootsie Pops and so forth. All right. Well, I would imagine that Tootsie Rolls and Tootsie Pops would be fairly expensive, wouldn't they? No, not over here. Tootsie, you know, the, the standard-sized Tootsie Rolls, about two cents, maybe one cent a piece. At least in the in the in the little convenience stores and so forth, you can go and buy those pretty cheap. Really, they're that cheap. Now, my understanding of Tootsie Rolls, correct me if I'm wrong here, they're like a, a small little sort of rectangular sponge with a cream filled in inside. Is that is that right? No, actually, a Tootsie Roll is more like a it's like a chocolate flavored taffy, and they have a Tootsie Pop as well, where they put that chocolate flavored taffy inside of it, and they'll put a, a candy shell around it. Oh, right. I must be thinking of something else then. Well, that's the thing about Halloween is you never know what you'll get. And I was discussing with my son today how, at least when I was a kid, and that wasn't very long ago, growing up in Los Angeles, me and my brothers, we would make a uh, a career out of it, if you will. We would go in, 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 
in shifts, and then we would come back to the house, and we'd dump out all our goods, and we would say, well, this house gave the best, or this house would give the best, and then we'd change up costumes and go back out again. And so essentially what was kind of cool, at least as a youth, to me, as a delinquent, was being able to go out <laughs> and, uh, you know, get all this candy. We could literally stock up in one evening, my brothers and I, in the big city, we could have enough candy to last pretty much the whole year, at least taking three or four pieces to school each day. Well, that was a question I wanted to ask you, actually, Jeremy, was that does anyone ever go out to, to get the, you know, the Guinness Book of World Records um, amount of candy? Uh, I mean, obviously, you and your brothers you know, put some serious um, hard yakker into that, didn't you? Yeah, I believe that's pretty much representative of a lot of, t of uh, you know, pre-teenage boys in America as well, because as you get older, you've got one of two options, pretty much to work in shifts, going door-to-door -door begging for candy, or hanging out in the bushes and stealing the bags from the younger kids. So, so you know, that's kind of how some of the uh, deviant ones in Los Angeles, anyway, would try and get their, their candy stockpile up as they would go bag-snatching. Is there any unwritten law as to what constitutes not enough candy and what constitutes the right amount of candy or too much candy? I mean, is a handful generally the accepted amount? Pretty much, yeah. I would say three to four pieces, it seems like. Because over here, at least in the South, people take their fall festivals and their harvest festivals extremely serious. And for the last week or so, we've been managing to kind of go around to a lot of potlucks and have some really good food, you know, prepared for... Uh, for the congregations and so forth here at Brooks, Brooks Methodist, Brooks Christian Church, and so forth. And so that's kind of been refreshing. But I noticed that the standard, you know, amount that we're given to the kids was about three to three and a half pieces each. Well, I was going to ask you, um, when you, but you've already answered the question, really. You know, when you get all this candy, do you take it home, your parents ration it out? But clearly you're in charge of the rationing. Yeah, for the most part, that's how it is. You could always be like my mom and go and ration out. The, she always tried to ration it, but we would get into it or we would stash a little bag somewhere else, you know. So for the most part, it usually got ate up within the first few days. Here in, here in America, Halloween is like the young kid's, you know, dream come true. It's like a kid in a candy store for the most part. And so I'd say probably 80% of the children out here who do trick-or-treat probably gorge their whole bag within a day or two. And how long does the actual evening last? I mean, does it start at a particular time and end at a particular time? I suppose you couldn't rock up at somebody's place at, say, quarter to 12 midnight, could you? No, not at all. And that was the interesting thing as well, at least growing up in the city. As soon as it got dark on October 31st, you could hit the streets. And you could go from pretty much around 7 o'clock to 9, 10 o'clock, but about 10 o'clock is the cutoff point for the most part. And what's been happening, at least here in America seemingly, is a lot of the, uh, there's a lot of bad people out there who want to put razor blades and apples and, and inject a lot of these candies with poisons and so forth. And so what happens here, at least, it being a commercial holiday, is most of the commercial businesses are the ones that host them. So here where we live right now, you know, tonight you can go to the fire department, the police department, city hall. They're all open. They're all dressed in their, uni in their costumes, and you can pretty much get a, a good handful of candy. Well, I heard that in the 70s, the, the, um, the what, what's the word for it, the, the sabotaging of candy was rife. You'd get razor blades and things like that. So there must have been a lot of Samuelsons living in the neighbourhoods. Yeah, see, you know, there's always somebody there who wants to muck it up. 
And when they muck it up, they destroy it for the rest of, you know, of society. You know, one baby dies in, in a particular type of uh, crib, then they have to recall every crib like that. And that's seemingly what happens. So here in the dirty south, unlike Southern California where I grew up, they will literally schedule it out for over the course of a week, which was kind of what I touched upon before. They'll say, well, we can have it on Friday, we can have it on Wednesday, or they'll have it three or four days in a row. And so while one church will have a, a little potluck and, and horse rides and, and all that stuff, you know, the next church down the road will have it the next day or the next day. So what I'm saying is in Alabama and Georgia, I've noticed, they'll pretty much roll the date of Halloween so it coincides with a school night or, you know, if it falls on a weekend, they'll, they'll coincide it to a Friday or a Monday like they do most holidays. That way, even though it's not a federal holiday, a lot of people can take a three-day weekend. And when you when you did trick or treating, did you were you were you only supposed to cover a certain area? Were you only allowed to go in your neighbourhood, or did you guys, you know, just do as many many houses as you possibly could in as many neighbourhoods? Well, that was kind of the unspoken rule in the in the late seventies, early eighties. Was you know you pretty much went to your neighbourhood, maybe five blocks out. You went to where pretty much your last friend or so lived. But I noticed in the mid-'80s, what happened in, in Southern California anyway, was a lot of the Mexicans figured out, who lived in San Fernando, Pacoima, and so forth, that if you went to Burbank or Beverly Hills or even Hollywood, you could get better candy and better goods. And so what they would do is they would, they would mass transport their entire family to one neighborhood, canvas that neighborhood, and then they'd go down the road to the next neighborhood and do that as well. But as far as as I was raised, it was always pretty much generally in your own neighborhood. And for the most part, the neighbors you knew. And when I was growing up, if the neighbor knew you, he would go ahead and throw you, you know, a full-size Hershey bar sometimes. And that was always special. Well, you touched on something very interesting there. You're talking about, you know, mestizos. And uh, I suppose now it would, trick-or-treating would be very multiracial. If you lived in a, you know, fairly multiracial suburb, you'd, ha you'd have all sorts of um, skin colors coming to your door. Oh, absolutely, and quite scary because, you know, in Southern California, it's all demographically, you know, set to the demographics. When I went to school, at least grammar school and junior high school, we had Mexican food for, you know, lunch and dinner. And, and kind of on that theme, you know, sandwiched between All Saints Day and All Souls Day, a lot of people may not know, is the Day of the Dead. And that's the Mexican holiday, and, and Los Angeles being so close to Tijuana – as a youth, I used to be enthralled with this because a lot of your Hispanic Catholics, they would get way into the Day of the Dead, and they would parade up and down the, the, the streets with these huge zombies and these huge skeletons and these huge, you know, and then, of course, they'd have a picture of Mary in there and the Queen of Heaven and so forth. But I always thought that was quite interesting how a lot of the, the Catholics, they took the Day of the Dead extremely serious. And when you went trick-or-treating, did you ever encounter people who, for religious objections, didn't, um, for religious reasons, didn't, um, you know, give, give out candy or for, for other reasons? Did you ever encounter, you know, the, the neighborhood curmudgeon and people like that? Well, here in America, the interesting thing is, for the most part, if the porch light is off, that really means that house is unapproachable. And so a lot of people on, on Halloween evening like this, what they'll do is they'll just turn off their lights and they'll go to the back room and they'll watch Halloween 3 season of The Witch. 
and settle in, you know, and, and just not even deal with the whole aspect of trick-or-treating. So in the Los Angeles, anyway, I never really received too many zealots who would come against you and say, you're going to burn in hell for celebrating Sam Hain. And even... On that token, here in the South, like I said, with their fall, the fall festivals that they have and the harvest festivals, a lot of the Judeo-Christian churches are really open about Halloween. They don't really even trace the roots of the festival back and, and see what it has to do with. All right, so lights on, you can, you can approach the house, lights off, take a hike. Exactly, exactly. And that's we've done it a few years, too. And in the 12 years we've lived here in Brooks, I have to say, honestly, we've never had a single trick-or-treater. And part of that is because we live so way out in you know, the country that no one really comes by. But for the, for the most part, in the big cities, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, so forth, right now is a smorgasbord of children getting all sorts of candy, going door-to-door, and gorging on so much sugar <laughs> – that tomorrow when they go to public school, they're going to pretty much be told that they're hyperactive and probably put on Ritalin or Prozac. <laughs> yeah, it's no wonder Americans suffer from diabetes, as do uh, Australians. I mean, you know, we're, we're big on confectionery. I am too. I mean, you know, I can talk. But, uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, how do you um, deter people from knocking on your door? But obviously you're out in a fairly rural area and you don't have the, the light on. But if, if some kids did come to your door, perchance, how, how would you deal with that? You know, the, uh, the amazing thing about this holiday, at least the Americanized version of it, is if that happens and you really have no candy on hand or cakes or apples or anything to give them, you can always get away with money and just throw like five pennies in each bag. <laughs> and, and that's a truism. You know, I actually used to make quite a bit of money, not a lot, but as a, as a kid, you know, making three or four dollars that you could go spend on now and laters later in the week was always exciting. So you could rack up some change. You just kind of pay them off so they don't prank your house and throw a pumpkin at your car or something. Well, because I was reading about the the history of Halloween, and apparently back in the 1930s, 40s, it was pretty much trick-or-treat was an extortion thing. You know, give us some lollies, give us some goodies, or or candy in the United States. Sorry, I keep slipping back into Australian terminology. Um, But, um, uh, you you know, they come to your door and say trick-or-treat, and if you didn't give them what they want, they'd vandalise. Absolutely. Some of your property. Absolutely, and that's what I was going to bring up as well, is there were certain times where if you came across an old miser, you know, at least me and my brothers who were kind of deviant in that regard, that's exactly (laughs) the time. You know, it is considered the season of the witch and so forth, so that's usually when the bags of of dog poo got burned on someone's front porch so they'd come out and stomp it out, or you would TP their house, for example, at midnight during the quote-unquote witching hour. You'd remember the houses that didn't give you very good or wouldn't give you anything at all or were misers, and you would TP their house with toilet paper and so forth all over the trees and so forth. So it truly is a night of, of pranks, and you know, when you trace it back to where it was melded in, Sam Hain itself, the Celtic festival, was melded in with what was known as All Hallows' Eve, which really just meant it was the evening before All Hallows' Day, which in essence is like a Christmas Eve. That's when all of these pagan elements got introduced into what at least used to be All Hallows' Eve. And that's why today we see the jack-o'-lanterns and the trick-or-treating and so forth. In fact, I covered that in Sam Hain, Green Man of Death, although that's been like seven years ago. But I had mentioned in that how it, the Celts would do this out of superstition. The whole meaning behind a uh, jack-o'-lantern 
was they would carve them out, but the ideal behind it was the Celts would put them out on their front porch to ward off evil spirits. So that's here in America, people dress up as devils or, you know, even angels sometimes. But for the most part, it's usually something gruesome, demonic, or, or like a witch. And don't even ever think about what the jack-o'-lantern really is supposed to represent. Well, I read that back in the day, the Druids wouldn't use jack-o'-lanterns. They'd use like, people's heads. They'd cut them off, you know, clean them out, and, um, you know, put a couple of candles or something in them to give, that, yeah, give exactly. them that sort of supernatural yeah. appearance. Yeah, exactly. And that's quite interesting, too, is the whole bonfire. You know, All Hallows' Eve, as a Christian festival, quote-unquote, at least Catholic or Greek Orthodox festival, is supposed to be like a precursor to All Saints' Day, of course, but it's also a time of harvest. It's almost like a Feast of Tabernacles. And so we're supposed to take time, time to thank Yahweh for our wheat increase or our apple increase. And so what a lot of the Celts would do is they would have these huge bonfires, now, the meaning of the word bonfire is actually an abbreviated term for bone fire. And that's, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's essentially where the terminology came from, because the Druids would essentially pile bodies up on All Hallows' Eve, quote-unquote, or Sam Hain, their version of it, and they would sacrifice. It's amazing how our, our people throughout the centuries, the millennia, have, have just perverted Yahweh's way of doing things, you know, um, you know, uh, you know the, the the Hebrews used to sacrifice animals, you know, uh, uh, for, for their sins. And uh, but then, then as we moved over overseas and away from um, the things of Yahweh, uh, you know, the memory of Yahweh, the, His way of doing things, that 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 thing was still in us that we needed to do these things, but we perverted them, we twisted them. So instead of you know sacrificing animals and that, we sacrificed each other. Yeah. Pretty much. Or, or even, you know, I was thinking about this today, how oftentimes as parents we sacrifice truth from our children because it's like Christmas, Easter, and Halloween have pagan roots in a lot of ways. Of course, we recognize that. But, you know, I think what a lot of parents fail to do, at least within Judeo-Christianity, is to educate their children as to what it is. You know, for me personally, you know, I've preached anti-Christmas discourses and pro-Christmas discourses because Swift was actually very, very pro-Christmas. And so I believe a lot of it behind that is education. If your children really recognize that December 25th isn't the birth of Christ and that it is pagan in a lot of ways, not to digress into Christmas, then there's really, you know, not a lot of harm in at least letting them somewhat recognize All Hallows' Eve. Well, I like to celebrate Christian, not because I see it as a, a necessarily a Christian festival, but because it's got the word Christian in it, and the Jews absolutely, absolutely loathe it. And uh, it, it's no coincidence that they um, X'd out the Christ in Christmas and just had Xmas, which was one of the most blasphemous things ever done. But um, yes, I, I like to celebrate Christmas simply because it just annoys Jews. Yeah, it really truly does, too. And you seem, you know, we're coming up on Christmas time. And within the next month or so, we're going to be reading or hearing in the news a lot of people, a lot of Jews, essentially, who get mad at the nativity displays and, and you know, the Christmas trees inside of Walmarts and so forth. And and in a way, I think it's it's kind of funny because, you know, for the most part, Judeo-Christians don't get offended when they celebrate Hanukkah or they see the... Uh, menorah right next to the nativity scenes but usually always the jews get upset with that word christ in christ mass 
and they want to exit out like they do his name. You know, in the Talmud, they teach, may his name forever be blotted out. And I believe in a lot of ways, the Xmas instead of Christmas is one such way of doing that. Well, Jews obviously have always had this, you know, pathological loathing of Christianity. And I've often wondered why um, a sort of enterprising white nationalist has never set up a camera near a church that gets passed by a lot of Jews and just leaves it filming, you know, throughout the day and just to see you know, how many Jews spit when they walk past that church. I think that would be something that could, could make for interesting YouTube viewing. Yeah, it's quite interesting. In fact, I think on a, one of the interviews where you interviewed me, I had discussed one of my previous girlfriends decades ago. But, you know, for lack of a better term, she went to New York expecting to see, you know, the Empire State Building and a lot of the things that are in New York. And what she was shocked to see was that everywhere in New York there were these Hasidic Jews called Hasids who would turn their head and basically spit at every shishka they saw. Really? Gee, that's a, I never knew that. That's, that's intriguing. So they would literally spit as soon as they saw a white woman. Absolutely. In, in New York City here in America, it is the epicenter of Jewry. Now, there's Jews in every major city, and there's even Jews out in the country as well. But for the most part, they're predominantly located in New York City, and there are areas like Hell's Kitchen and the Bronx Zoo and so forth where there are straight-up militant Jews. I mean, we're talking mafia for the most part in a lot of ways. Well, I don't know why some white nationalists don't go down there and, and, and set up a hidden camera and film some of that. I mean, that would be very revealing, and that, that, would, make, that would really show the, the lemmings that the Jews really aren't our buddies. Yeah. And one interesting thing about that whole, you know, the Jews hate, hate Christ and all symbology, is it seems like while the Jews despise Christmas, as a quote-unquote pagan holiday. At the same time, they really kind of give a carte blanche pass to Halloween. And as long as it's their interpretation of Halloween, which is for the most part the consumer holiday, the melding of, of Sam Hain and all those things together, that's okay because, you know, it stems from witchcraft, druidism, and a lot of, of superstition. But, you know, here in America, if you're pro-Christian, a lot of times they'll that's who they go after. Christmas holiday they do not like and they do not like Easter. But they love Halloween and they love all the Labor Days and New Year New Year's Days and I mean there's so many different Veterans Days down here it's not even funny. And they love Martin Luther Coon Day, don't they? That's really big with them. Yeah, and another interesting thing that I find interesting is is here in the south it doesn't matter what city you live in. You can be in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you could be downtown Atlanta, Georgia, or you can be in Huntsville, Alabama. Whatever southern city you are in, there will always be a Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Yeah, and uh, it's just amazing. I mean, the guy used to be used to have sex with white prostitutes and beat up on them, and um, it, it's no. It's no surprise that they sealed up a lot of his records and aren't going to release them to, for, I think, another 10 or so years yet. Yeah, that's a good point about Michael King, is a lot of people don't even realize he was such a plagiarist. He plagiarized his name from uh, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, you know. And so it's kind of interesting, you know, that everything he did was sealed by the government, I think, until like 2015. And I guarantee you, even when that time expires, they're going to say, oops, well, we lost it. 
all this proof of him and Jesse Jackson with the Black Panthers and him being a whoremonger with white whores and so forth. It's really kind of interesting when you study out his life and realize how far a person can get like Martin Luther King or Elvis Presley or, you know, whoever the Jew deems as Jew-worthy. A perfect example of that, in my opinion, is Britney Spears, because she's one of, one of the hundreds of girls who come out of Disney or Mickey Mouse Club who you know, had a, a career, a quote-unquote musical career, pretty much centered around the concept of, of kiddie porn or grown men lusting after teenage girls and so forth. But there was a point where she actually had to shave her head and, and don this um, Star of David and it happened, it was all over TMZ, and basically now they're saying she was on drugs and trying to pass a drug screen or whatever else. But it was like, quote-unquote, the fall of Britney. Now if you look at Britney Spears, she's hosting like the X Factor as a judge. I mean, I wouldn't say someone like that could be a judge of music in the first place, but my point is, is once she proved herself Jew-worthy, she's now making more money being a judge on a television show here in America than she probably ever did selling albums. Yeah, it all, it all comes down to them showing obeisance to the Jews. But just getting back to um, Martin Luther King for a second, isn't it interesting that he had to name himself after a white man? Because what, you know, celebrated, honourable, noble black man could he have named himself after? Yeah, exactly. And I don't think he had the race card to play like, you know, Bob Marley, Jimi Hendrix, and Barack Obama, who could all say, hey, at least we're half white, you know, and a lot of people don't know that about those three, but all three of them, were mulattoes, and, and if any musical quote-unquote genius these men would have had, it would have been stemmed from the white side of their bloodline. Yeah, I saw um, Barack Obama talking about the Frankenstorm um, yesterday on TV, the, the news, and, oh, geez, a creepy-looking fellow with a triangular head and jaggy ears and those purple lips and ugh. I know, he looks so much like Gollum from the Lord of the Rings movies. It, 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 <laughs> he does. Really just, he, that's right. He does like a black version of Gollum. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great that you brought up, you know, tornado or hurricane Sandy, and how it wiped out a lot of New York. New York is usually the target of you know God's wrath nine times out of ten. You know, of course we had Katrina, and a lot of people forgot to tell you that there was like gay parades that day and so forth. And we know in Christian identity that it is Yahweh who controls the weather. So, you know, it's funny how a lot of people in the media right now are all crying, complaining, talking about, oh, Wall Street shut down. In a lot of ways, I think it's a good thing. Yes, well, I saw some footage of downtown Manhattan. It looked like Venice. You know, all the streets were just carpeted in water, and uh, it was amazing. I, was, I, I meant to ask you, did, did Hurricane Sandy get as far as Georgia, or are you too far off the beaten path for Sandy's wrath? We got the uh, the east coast winds is what we got because Georgia as a state, at least like two-thirds of it on its eastern tip, does border the ocean and so, you know, Savannah and so forth. And so a lot what we got was huge winds. And what was interesting about this was during the same night or whatever when that came up, a tree, the, the winds became so torrential that the, the tree, a big tree blew across our, our road down there and it pretty much blocked off all traffic for about a day and a half and we were content with it because we live at the end of a dirt road and everyone who lives on our street you know pretty much knows who i am and so forth and we all kind of look out for each other but the end two neighbors me and the next door neighbor were pretty much locked off from society and we were kind of content with it for a few days it was nice not to be able to have people coming up here and turning around and so forth 
Oh, well, well that's, that's it's good that you live in a nice, quiet area. I wish I did, or, or, or where I'm living at the moment is kind of quiet. Um, I've got a block of flats next door, but they, they, they tend to be a fairly quiet bunch of people, even though there's a few... It's quite uh, multiracial in there. Um, I meant to ask you last week, Jeremy, uh, uh, a question about... Um, you're talking about how you had a house in Joplin and um, a tornado swept there and spared your house. I must have got sidetracked, because the question I wanted to ask you was that... you know. What, how did you feel? I mean, I obviously know how you would have felt when you saw that your house had been spared, but maybe you could, you could run us through going back to your house and sort of like, because you didn't know whether it had been spared or not. So how about, how about we pick the story up from where you started going through your neighbourhood, seeing all of this devastation, and you finally got to your house? That's actually great that you brought that up because this weekend I was able to touch base with an old friend of mine and his spouse. And his spouse had grown up right here in the same exact area, but she lives three or four you know counties over. And so this weekend they, was actually the first time in about a year, year and a half, that they came and visited and, and fellowshiped with us. And what was interesting about that was her growing up here as a child coming back to it after, you know, the first time since the hurricane hit, she didn't even recognize it. And that was really kind of, you know, what was on our hearts when that came down, because even though we had heard being in Washington State that our house was spared by my parents who don't live too far away, we had no idea the extent of the damage. There was a little bit of damage, you know, and a Basically, a few shingles blew off the roof and everything. But when we actually ended up coming back and rounded the corner coming down the road to our house, it was like a huge sigh of relief because we were seeing the devastation driving into Brooks, but we had no idea how bad it was and, and literally didn't understand how close it had come. Now, there were years and seasons living here in Georgia time and time again that there would be tornadoes and hurricanes and stuff and they would be so bad that you'd literally have to evacuate a certain area or they would just do like I said pretty much the winds would knock over a tree or so but when this tornado hit down in Brooks and Sonoya where the Walking Dead is filmed it pretty much went <laughs> straight across and it ripped the earth it was like something I had never seen before because you could literally not only on satellite but just by standing at ground level, see how it was a, a half mile, a quarter mile wide path of destruction, literally a straight line like a scar in the earth of nothingness, where every tree was uprooted, every house in its path was literally not just knocked over, but picked up, blown miles and miles around. And so when you really kind of come face to face with that you know, type of destruction that many times, actually, we, we figured the house was, was gone, you know, being in Washington State, because hearing it on the news, the severity of it all, and so forth, and what was weird is even in Washington State, the whole tornado thing was partially brought on, they say, at least in the media, by that huge little uh, tsunami they had in Japan or whatever in 2010. And so they kind of happen in conjunction. And so what I'm saying is being all the way on the Pacific coast in the Pacific Northwest, while that was happening here, we had to evacuate where we were staying in Portland because, because they were saying that a tsunami would be coming and hitting Seattle, Portland, and Sacramento, and so forth. Well, they call that stretch of um, tornado-prone land in America Tornado Alley, don't they? So I suppose if you, you live in that part of the country, you, you'd really... 
I mean, you'd really have a great, <laughs> a great incentive to listen to the evening news, the weather report on the evening news every night, wouldn't you? Absolutely, and they take it serious. I mean serious. They will preempt any broadcast down here, daytime television, primetime, it does not matter if there is torrential weather. And, and basically, here in Georgia, there's two things. There's a hurricane watch or a, a hurricane warning. One of those two. Now, if it's a hurricane warning, basically it will flash on the news and it will buzz through the radio airwaves saying that there's a warning of tornadoes coming, you know, because they can come two, three hundred times, at a, you know, or two, three hundred different ones at a time all throughout the state. And if there's a, a hurricane uh, watch or warning, you have to get inside your house. So the watch is basically keeping their eye out and making sure that everything's fine. And, and the uh, warning means get inside your house, get in your basement, get in your fruit cellar, and pretty much there's going to be no school tomorrow. Can they always predict the tornadoes, or, or, or are some tornadoes completely unexpected? But, yeah, that's the thing, is a lot of them are unexpected. Those are the ones that I think are really kind of God's woozies that he sends, because they come out of nowhere, and the uh, quote-unquote meteorologists aren't able to get on top of it. And what's interesting in Atlanta a lot of times is they'll have three or four different weather casters. And I swear to you, Obadiah, every time they give a forecast, they're usually always wrong. They'll come and they'll say, well, you know, today it's going to be sunny, great, go outside, go outside and get some sun. And it'll be storming, thunderstorms, so, so heavily that you have to pull over on the freeway you can't see. And then other times they'll say, oh, my goodness, here comes a tornado, here comes a, a, a huge rainstorm, and it's perfectly blue outside. And on top of that, what's interesting about where I live being kind of plain type, almost swamp, is you can be 15 minutes down the road, like I can go to Sonoya or Fayetteville, and it'll be clear as a bell, and you could go five minutes up the road or come back to Brooks, and it'll be pouring rain. So it's, it's kind of interesting. My wife loves the weather here. Yes, yeah, so tornadoes are something that we rarely get here in Australia, and when we do, they're fairly mild, very mild compared to what you get in America. I mean, they go up to F5, don't they? So highly destructive winds. Uh, we get the occasional cyclone and things like that, but um, uh, most of our disasters seem to be centred around um, bushfires. We get a lot of bushfires. They had a huge bushfire here in Victoria in 2009, summer of 2009, that um, killed 178 people, I think it was, and that was just, you know, there were walls of flame about 300 feet high, and it was just, a, you know, an absolute, uh, it was a holocaust, you know, it just um, turned everything to slag. But, um, yeah, we, we, we don't get really t any tornado to write home about. Well, that's interesting. It, you know, it, it really kind of goes to show the difference between, you know. Texas, you're on the line. Did you have something to say, brother? Okay. Well, I'll leave him on the line. If he has anything to say, he can speak up. So who but, was on the line? Uh, we have a caller from Texas. Oh, right, okay. Is he speaking or is he not speaking or is he just listening in, is he? Looks like he's just going to listen. So. All right, okay. Well, hello, Texas. <laughs> exactly. Texas is the biggest state in California or in the United States. And so Texas is interesting because living in Georgia and Alabama over here on the south, but growing up in Los Angeles, I would commute back and forth a lot in the 90s when gas was more affordable. And I it would take about a day for me to get from Georgia to Texas, and it would take me a day to get 
through Texas. There's literally miles and miles and miles of Texas, unless you're on the northern tip. But what I was saying was basically in, in Southern California, the weather is always usually very temperate, very mild, you know. And moving to the south, that was one of the first things that I had noticed is, you know, you're in historical Dixie down here, and the weather here does not play and the people do not play. And so it's really weird because every other year or so, we'll get a huge ice storm where we're at, and the streets will freeze over. And, you know, it'll be a really, really bad snow, but it only happens like every two years or every other year, maybe every three years. So it's actually kind of nice in a lot of ways. Yes, well, it never snows here unless you go right up into the mountains. We don't have very high mountains in Australia. I think our tallest Kosciuszko is only something like, well, it's under 8,000 feet above sea level, I think. Don't quote me on that, but it's a very low... Australia's a quite, quite a flat land. It does have, have quite a few mountains and spectacular hills and uh you know valleys and things like that but it's quite a um quite a quite a, a flat land compared to america because you have things like the colorado mountains and um yeah yeah sure we got uh we got varying varying and in, in fact uh Podemsky's corrected me on that and and he's right alaska is actually the biggest american state but kind of like when sarah palin was running four years ago most people were kind of saying well alaska is like a whole other country and in a lot of ways it is even though it's owned by america you know like hawaii and part of puerto rico and so forth you know it doesn't really seem to be like one of the 52 union states well, Alaska would have the, the good thing about living in a cold climate is that there are a few non-whites, unless they're Eskimos, of course. Yeah, that's true because the Negro, for the most part, is a very, very tropical people. And when you when you're talking southern heat here in Georgia, I mean, it can get up there, and with the humidity index, it's it's through the roof. And the the Negro flourishes in that. I kid you not, because it, it's more representative of like Haiti and Jamaica and a lot of the tropical states that they they should be in for the most part. And meanwhile, the white man's usually sitting inside his office or his car, running his air conditioner, trying to stay out of the heat you know now jeremy would now be a good time to um give a, a very exciting announcement yes it's always a good time for a very exciting announcement i say well uh pastor martin lindstedt passed away this morning no oh, that is the <laughs> best news ci has heard in a long time and i swear to you i hope to god that in a hundred years from now some defiled human being doesn't come across our sermons and transcribe them out and think he's going to onentate them. But, hey, that's a whole other story. Yes, no, I was kidding about that last one, but, you know, hope springs eternal. But um, Pastor Bob from Nevada is going to be on the show shortly. So could be as early as next week, but um, probably within the next month. So um, that's very exciting news. Let's just hope and pray he's not too, too soft on the Jews. <laughs> Absolutely. That is exciting news, and I'm actually really looking forward to doing a broadcast like that because since Wickstrom, quote-unquote, retired, at least from doing Yahweh's Truth broadcast, I think it was like February 2011, or it could have been 2000, it could have been this year. But I've been wondering, you know, I know what's up with Wickstrom because we kind of communicate, but uh, I've been wondering about Pastor Bob from Nevada. Yes, well... Stupid me. He actually replied to the email I sent him more than a month ago. But um, I had so much clutter in my inbox on my Gmail account that um, I overlooked it. So I'll, I'll have to get back to him and apologise to him for being so, so tardy and so stupid. But, um, yeah, so, so he'll, he'll be on the show. But the only problem is, is that Bob 
um, lives in Nevada, which is under Pacific time, which is three hours behind your time, which, which means he's almost a day behind me, 17 hours behind me. So I'm not sure whether we should do a special one-off weekend show and uh, pre-record it, or we could do a, a later edition of this show. We'd have to start at, say, 9 o'clock. Um, I don't know how people would feel about that, but we could do it that way. So um, we'll, we'll figure something out. But uh, if we do do a live um, broadcast, if we do do it on the Wednesday night show, the, it'll have to be a special 9 p.m. Wednesday show, but we'll, we'll make sure that that's um, advertised well in advance so people don't miss out. That's a good idea. You know, in fact, maybe what we should do would be to, uh, I mean, we've done long shows before and this is on you, but I've noticed that there's a need and a desire, at least within Christian identity, to uh, study some of the acrostics. Because ever since we mentioned that a week or two ago, it's been kind of like a firestorm of conversation. And, of course, a lot of the no-devils hopped right on it, talking about, oh, don't follow the hidden codes and so forth. But the acrostics aren't hidden, you know, and these are things that Christian identists should know. So maybe we could even do like a two-hour show on that and then have Pastor Bob on. Well, well, if <laughs> if you do a two-hour show on that, I'm going to have to do some research because I know next to nothing about it. Oh boy, a two-hour show! I'll just have to. I'll just ask you one question. Let you let you speak for 15 minutes, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk something else. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about the acrostics is there's, you know, and like I said, you know, even bringing it up, I didn't mean to actually cause controversy, but it's not hidden. They're not esoteric meanings. They're actually transcribed there by the Hebrew writers. They're put in there so you can understand that you're supposed to understand them. And a perfect example of an acrostic would be the fish bumper sticker that we see time and time again on people's bumper stickers. That actually stems from a Greek acrostic. Nowhere in the scripture does it say, you know, straightforwardly that the Fish is the symbol of Christianity, but it does so in the acrostics, and that's where that stems from. Another perfect example would be uh, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, and the virtuous woman. The virtuous woman is like 21 verses in, in and of itself, but can be boiled down to like three. So it, it'd be interesting, but, you know, that's just an idea, because I've noticed that ever since we mentioned that, a lot of people have been questioning that, and a lot of the no-devils, seemingly, the ones who say there's no literal devil, are the ones who are having a, a big problem with that, so I love it. But I'm well, really excited. I, I, I was just going to say, I'm really oh, oh. excited to hear that Pastor Bob's going to be on, because I think there's going to be a lot of people, especially on the Kingdom Identity message boards and so forth, who uh, would love to hear from him again. Yes, I, I'm a huge fan of Bob's because he was one, one half of the greatest Christian identity tag team of all time, him and uh, Pastor James Wickstrom. I used to love Yahweh's Truth. I, I used to love listening to that on, a, I think, it was, was it a Wednesday night, your time? And then I'd listen to the Hal Turner show. This is before I knew Hal was a filthy rat traitor. And, oh, they used to be two entertaining shows, and they, and, and they really complemented each other beautifully. Yeah, I believe they did in a lot of ways. And I had a, I had a real good time you know, doing that. Unfortunately, Hal was discovered to be a Fed informant and so forth later on, which none of us really knew. But I had a really good time in that because it seems like Wickstrom and even Derek McThomas and Hal Turner and Faber, a lot of us preachers were putting out some really good material. In a lot of ways, the Ten Commandments series that I preached over that summer is probably, in a lot of ways, one of my defining works because it covers all ten of the laws, which in a lot of ways encompasses the entire whole of the law. And, you know, I was able to preach about miscegenation, but it was probably some of the hardest materials I ever preached. Now, Jeremy, before it uh, slips in my mind, Daylight Savings ends in America um, on November the 1st. Is that right? Yeah. 
yeah, it actually ends, I believe, tonight at midnight. We're supposed to uh, r- roll them back for fall. So that means you'll be starting 7 o'clock will be later next week. Yeah, you guys don't have daylight savings, do you? Yeah, so it will be earlier. No, wait, later. Yeah, it'll be an hour later, actually, your well, time. Well, actually, actually, we do have daylight savings. You're in daylight savings time now. It's geez, a hassle figuring it all out and... Uh, I'm still sure, pretty sure I can do the show. We'll see how we go, but um, we'll, we'll sort something out. But cool. um, yeah, so, so that's all going to be very interesting. Interesting, but um, yeah, yeah, it's just going to be an absolute thrill to have Bob on the show. There's so many questions I want to ask the guy. I can't wait for him to come on. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, that's that's the beauty of it. Is within Christian identity, I've said it time and time again. It's the closest thing that I believe a lot of men down here are able to come to truth. But Christian identity as a whole is not all truth. You know, as a body, that's the only truth there is. And so here a little, there a little. A lot of these preachers are essential. And so when, a lot of these people want to closet themselves off. They want to put themselves in a little corner, say, I only study this, I only study that. And that's really not the mindset that Paul wanted us to have. So, you know, I, I think it's great to be able to edify. And, and men like that who are up in years, you know, they're the ones that I think we should focus on a lot of ways to uh, because they're higher in wisdom than us in a lot of ways. And we'll have to ask him for his Desert Island verses too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like that whole concept. And I really like the concept of picking a theme as well and going like once a month with that and even centering around, like you said, the topic of prayer or, you know, tithing, whatever it may be. Yes, I think we should do it every month at the end of the month. So it won't be now because t- today's the end of the month for, for you guys. So so it'll be the end of next month and we're going to look at prayer and how to pray. It's something, it's a... Uh, it's a topic in Christian identity that's rarely discussed. And let's face it, that prayer is uh, our, one of the primary means of communication with Yahweh. Yeah, indeed. Not only that, is it's one of the easiest ways, I believe, that Christians are able to increase faith. The neglect of, of prayer oftentimes leads people, you know, into faithlessness. So, And that's kind of... What we're discussing tonight is the whole concept of All Hallows' Eve. Now, this is All Hallows' Eve, and it, like I had mentioned before... Jeremy, Jeremy, can I just interrupt you for one second? There's just one more announcement I wanted to make, and that was about a, a podcast you just sort of snuck onto your, your talk show page. Did you want to give that a plug? Absolutely. Did you like that, or have you listened to it yet? I, I haven't. I, I just saw it when I, when I got up this morning, so I haven't had a chance to listen to it. I've got it on my, my iRiver. That's kind of like an iPod, only better. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to listen, listen to that uh, later on today. Yeah, actually, that sermon uh, was from this Sunday, and it's called Being Past Feeling. And the interesting thing about this as well is I brought four sermons in the past, like Cut Off Time, where I mentioned that scripturally, many times when we harden our own heart, we reach a point where God will come along and he will harden our heart for us, like Pharaoh. And there reaches a point where grace usually is kind of removed from us, and that's the cutoff time. So being past feeling, this Sunday sermon is taken from Ephesians chapter 4, the latter half. It's actually the second half of quote-unquote heavens to Olga, or what was released as <laughs> unity of the faith. But it stems around the concept that when we walk in the vanity of our own minds and in our own hearts, like many self-professing Christian identities do, the ones who come along and say, oh, we don't need to follow the law, or even the ones who say, well, the devil's not literal, a lot of times what happens is God puts us to a point of being past 
feeling. It's essentially the same exact concept of having our conscious seared about with a hot iron because man's propensity to do you know, sin is hardwired within them. And in that, it's a great sermon because Paul talks about putting away the old man and putting on the new man. And in putting on the new man, we're supposed to also put away malice. We're supposed to put away lying and bearing false witness. And in my opinion, there's certain sects within Christian identity, or at least who call themselves Christian identity, who devote their entire ministries to trying to destroy and cause dissension within the ranks usually because they don't have any works of their own, but, you know, be that as it may, as we covered in the Spiritual Gift series, you know, Paul continually taught for unification, that there's one body, that even though there may be many pastors, we all comprise the body, and in the body, following the head, which is supposed to be Jesus Christ, only in that can we know, quote-unquote, all truth, or at least as close to all truth as we can be, as come, you know, in the flesh. All right. Well, I, I was wondering what that talk was about because the, the title didn't really give it away, but you've explained that beautifully, so I can't wait to hear that. Yeah, it's a great one. And I chose that because it's actually in the text, like I did Unity of the Faith, but it kind of reminds me of Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb. That's exactly what pretty much is being said there, that Yahweh God will come along and numb a person to the point like before they're blinded, before they're actually deafened, they're numbed, and when they're numbed, they're not even able to pretty, they like pretty much walk around in a stupor, a drunken stupor. So it's quite interesting because I think in doing it, it exposed a lot of the traits of the snakes because, of course, while we're supposed to put away the old man and put on the new man, put away lying malice and all these other things, there's that whole sect out there, who, even in Judeo-Christianity, who want to come along and say, you know what, I can fudge the law here. I can go ahead and eat this, even though God says not to. And the whole teaching behind the entire sermon is that if you fudge it here, you're going to fudge it there and there and there. And it begins a downward slope of apostasy because it's almost impossible to just throw one verse out because when you do that, suddenly there's two or three other ones that don't align with your dogma and so forth. So it is a downward spiral of apostasy in a lot of ways. So are we going to continue on with um, the, our discussion on Halloween or did you have something you want to say about that? Well, yeah, we should definitely discuss some other aspects about All Hallows' Eve because, as I had mentioned before, All Hallows' Eve is the uh, Scottish or at least abbreviated version of, of, of what Halloween became. Halloween is an abbreviated or a slang term for Hallows' Eve. And initially in its Christian or at least Greek Orthodox inception, it was meant to be a time, like I mentioned, to be thankful to Yahweh God for the harvest, and to look forward to All Saints Day. Now, All Saints Day, at least according to the Western calendar in most of America, is predominantly celebrated by Catholics, but many other, like Methodists and also some Greek Orthodox, as I mentioned. And All Saints Day is always celebrated the next day, meaning tomorrow, November 1st. It's also now, can I just ask you a quick question about um, All Saints Day? Because my understanding is that that was a, a Roman celebration that tried to that uh, incorporated aspects of well supposed aspects of christianity into it and and paganism did you did you want to talk about that yeah well exactly as i'm saying about the all hallows eve leading up to all hallows day which is also considered all saints day it is one of those holidays that was officially sanctioned by the roman catholic church so in discussing all three of these, or all four of these holidays, All Hallows' Eve, All Saints' Day, Day of the Dead, and All Souls' Day, 
you know, it should be pointed out that, yes, there is pagan tree within these, but they do have Christian roots. And the whole Christian root behind All Saints Day, even though it was a, you know, an organized thing by the, the Catholic Church, or at least I think it was about 600 AD or so forth, the whole design behind it was to have another day set aside to remember the saints. And so... It's one of those interesting things when you consider that, for the most part, the church and the Bible, or the Bible teaches, that the saints aren't necessarily those who are considered Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so forth. The saints are is pretty much anybody who's ever died for the witness of Christ, and so forth. It's pretty much a time to, to focus your thoughts on those that have been deceased, but also with a fondness that they were saints, meaning that you were supposed to focus, the original focus of All Saints Day was to be able to focus on the martyrs who died, you know, and of course it's not that way today. Well, actually it probably is because it's probably been less paganized in a lot of ways than Halloween has, or at least All Hallows' Eve. Because you, you never really hear about All Saints Day. I, I, I've rarely heard about it. I mean, Halloween really gets the the immense bulk of the of publicity, doesn't it? Uh, you know, in popular culture and uh, you know, in news reports and things. But you hardly ever hear about All Saints Day. Absolutely, and the irony behind all that is, as I pointed out, it, All Hallows Eve is really the evening before All Hallows Day, which is Saints Day. You know, so hallow, as, an, as a word, if you think about it, hallowed be thy name, it's actually supposed to be something sacred. And so it is supposed to be a solemn assembly, at least according to Catholic and, and, and Orthodox tradition, to focus on those saints that had died. You know, so the irony here in America is at midnight, when the clock strikes 12, that's considered the witching hour, the time between All Hallows' Eve and All Hallows' Day. So while it's considered the witching hour, at the same time, it is actually the beginning and the commencement of All Saints Day, at least according to the uh, Catholic calendar. So it's kind of interesting how Halloween is a precursor to the big holiday being All Saints Day, but All Saints Day is rarely ever mentioned, and Halloween is focused upon time and time again. Well, it's um, kind of symbolic of what we see today. We're living in a very corrupt society, a society, a society that um, perhaps not directly embraces Satanism and, you know, the things that, uh, you know, that interest it, uh, you know, the embracing of supernatural and the rejection of Christianity. Christianity. So it's like we're going through our own All Hallows Eve now, an extended version, and, and, and when Yahweh returns, it'll be All Saints Day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and as I mentioned kind of briefly at the beginning of the broadcast, sandwiched between these, between November 1st and November 2nd, or at least for those two days coinciding within that, is the Mexican holiday Day of the Dead. Now this is where they focus upon those fleshly dead. Unlike All Saints Day where we realize the saints reign and live with Christ. The Mexican version of that, or at least the one that coincides with it, focuses more on the flesh aspect of we're going to remember Grandpa Jones because he was a good Christian or he was a good saint. And so while it's ironic that we have All Saints Day on November 1st, the Day of the Dead for the November 1st and November 2nd, November 2nd begins All Souls Day. Now All Souls Day is an entirely different holiday but this is technically if you think about it a three-day holiday at least with christian roots at its core root now all souls day of course is celebrated on november 2nd and it is 100 percent catholic 
holiday. But that was the time where they were supposed to recognize those that they believed were still stuck in purgatory. Much like the Day of the Dead, it was remembrance of those who may have not made it in, but have a chance at a future penance. So, so, <laughs> trying to keep up with all these, all these days. So we have All Hallows' Eve, we have All Saints' Day, and All Souls' Day. Now, I, I presume that All Souls' Day probably was instituted what um in, in the early period of the catholic church was it to yeah actually i'm looking that up right now at its institution because it would be interesting to figure that out uh reformation all souls day was fused with all saints day in the church of england though it was renewed individually in certain churches in connection with catholic revival of the 19th century the observance was restored with the publication in 1980 alternative science book and its features in common worship and, and so forth. Basically, a commemoration of the faithful departed is, is what transliterates into All Souls Day. And so, of course, the superstitious Catholics love believing in their purgatory concept. And, and basically, in Catholic dogma, the belief is this, that there's, only th there's three deaths. The first death, of course, is when the mortal, mortal coil parts, and they actually give up the ghost. The second death is when they're lowered into the ground, meaning they're covered with the earth and pretty much kind of blotted out of existence. And according to Catholic dogma, the third death is when somebody forgets about them. And so the whole concept of All Souls Day is, is much like many communist countries and, and, and the Hindu Hindus as well do this, is they'll set aside a day, Day of the Dead, in remembrance of the dead because they believe if my great-great-grandmother so-and-so is forgotten, then, then and only then do they truly die. And so this is part of the reason why Catholics always like candles to venerate the dead. Yes, it's uh, all of it. What all of it seems to, to add up to is just to turn people away from Yahweh, from, from his way of doing things, from his fe festivals that celebrate him. Um, th these just seem to be things to... You know, we're like the entertainment industry is today, just to preoccupy us, to keep our minds off Yahweh, to, to searching into his deep things, his spiritual things, and, and just to give them a, a kind of a, um, a cut-rate substitute for, for, for his festivals, for his laws, for, for you know, um, sticking with his ways. Yeah, that's a really good point, because, you know, when you consider that even today, All Hallows' Eve, is really meant to be at its core root a commemoration of the fall harvest or what they consider harvest time. It's interesting how it, you know, it was two weeks ago it was the Feast of Tabernacles. So in a lot of ways, it seems to me like with almost everything God creates or sanctions within his word of God, like a solemn assembly, they'll come along and they'll have an All Souls Day. Or if we're supposed to have a Feast of Tabernacles, the devil will come along and mold pagan elements within it, and that's where Halloween or, all, or Sam Hain comes from, the Festival of Lights. Now, Sam Hain, who was – that was – I, I did read about this, but I've forgotten, actually. I've got a memory like a bottomless pit. Now, was Sam Hain some kind of deity, or was it some uh, variation on Satan? What exactly was it? Well, Sam Hain, that's the interesting thing. Sam Hain kind of became memorialized through Gwen Danzig in the 70s or in the 80s with that great punk band or cross-metal punk band Sam Hain. 
But Sam Hain is actually not the proper, you know, pronunciation of the word. It's actually Salyin is the way it's supposed to be said. And it is a Gaelic festival. It marks the end of the harvest season. And probably at its core root, it was probably a really good thing for, you know, the Celts to come along and, and praise, you know, at least whoever they praised the Lord of the Harvest, but he was never a deity. It's actually the festival itself is considered Samhain or Saul Yen, and it, it's basically centered around I, Irish mythology, which is where a lot of the uh, the uh, the pagan elements came in. Like I, I mentioned, the bonfire, the trick-or-treating, the vandalism. It's essentially, for lack of a better term, considered Hell Night. All right, there was a terrible horror movie by that name, made in the uh, 1980s, starring Linda Blair, called Hell Night. Hell Night with Linda Blair. Oh, yes, I've seen that film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. That's, a, that's interesting. But, yeah, Linda Blair was in another interesting film called Witchery, and in that he, there was David Hasselhoff as well. And it kind of centered around the whole thing. You know, I was even thinking about this today, how Halloween 3 considered Season of the Witch – Okay, now, this didn't fit in with the Michael Myers trilogy at all, of course. And a lot of people were offended when they went to the theater to see Halloween 3 because they were uh, expecting to see Michael Myers return. But the irony behind Season of the Witch is it's actually a very good movie, in my opinion. And I think they had to call it Halloween 3 Season of the Witch and, as opposed to just Season of the Witch to keep it from competing with George Romero's Season of the Witch, which is an entirely different movie. But both of those movies, actually, in a lot of ways, center around the Celtic Druidic uh, practice of celebrating Saul Yan or Sam Hain. Well, in, in Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, if my memory serves me correctly, it was all about some maniac was going around creating all of these um, Halloween masks that had this mechanical device in it that as soon as it, you put it on your head it would constrict around your neck and, and cut your head off, decapitate you. Yeah, they were essentially, they were called silver shamrock masks. And the interesting aspect about the film was what gave the masks their power was the fact that they had stolen one of the runes from Stonehenge, placed there by what they believed, of course, to be druids. And so they were breaking down parts of Stonehenge and putting little pebbles in the back of the mask. And, of course, when they would tune in at a particular time to watch the broadcast, the big giveaway at 9 o'clock, the mask would go nuts and everyone would die. But the reason it was centering around that whole aspect was it was essentially this whole coven of witches who had been celebrating Sam Hain at, you know, in its original state, not what we consider Halloween. And all the kids were the sacrifice. And that, it was kind of ingenious in a lot of ways because it just shows what evil in a lot of ways looks like. And evil is usually oftentimes very kind to children and so forth, at least until evil commences. Well, Druids were said to be Israelites, you know, Hebrews, who, um, you know, and when I first read of them, um, this was going back some years ago, I thought that they were pretty much placid kind of fellows who, um, you know, really didn't get up to much mischief at all. I mean, a lot of their, their rituals and that had strayed quite far from the biblical pattern. But, um, you know, re reading up on things of late, though, I see that they were just absolute maniacs. You know, they were the Martin Lindstedts of their days. You know, they went around you know, <laughs> killing little kids and sacrificing them and... Uh, committing all of these terrible pa pagan crimes. I mean, they were, they, were, they were absolute shockers, the Druids were. Yeah, 
And that's the thing I think is beautiful is that even though Stonehenge is considered one of the what seven wonders of the world, I don't think man will ever really figure out who the Druids were or even in a lot of ways the Knights Templar. Because a lot of people, you know, the Masons and the Eastern Star claim to be descendants of the Knights Templar. And a lot of people say that they're descendants of Druids. And I hear both. I hear that the Druids were Israelites and actually were, you know, following Yahweh and this. And then I've also heard exactly what you're saying in that they <coughs> pretty much were, yeah, essentially what I would consider like the VNN tards of our era. If they knew God, it was in <laughs> passing and they were essentially you know, in a lot of ways, overtaken by pagantry. And that's the pagan element of All Hallows' Eve. And people, I think, miss that, is that All Hallows' Eve, like I mentioned, is just the precursor to All Saints' Day. But what we, what we celebrate, at least globally, you know, or in certain countries, as Halloween is more representative and more symbolic of Sam Hain than it is All Hallows' Eve. Yes, it's, um, you know, it, it's fascinating the way it sort of things get uh, changed throughout, um, not just throughout history, but through the, the recording of history. I, I, I mean, you know, as you said, you, you hear these conflicting things about the Druids. It's not just Druids, it's everything else. I mean, I, I've heard conflicting things now about um, the Spanish Inquisition, that it wasn't nearly as bad as people purport it to be. And the way, the way it's sort of been you know, report as some kind of, or, or record as some kind of holocaust of, you know, the Middle Ages, it's simply because, you know, they, they really laid the boots into the Jews that were, you know, committing all these terrible, you know, um, ritual murders and, you know, blaspheming Yahweh. And uh, so the people behind, like Torquemada, is supposed to have been this, you know, just slavering, just maniacal guy that just went around killing everybody. But the fact was he was a very religious, very devout um, friar, who was very just in the punishments he meted out. And, you know, um, you hear about hundreds of thousands of people were, were, were killed in the Spanish, put to death in the Spanish Inquisition. Well, that's apparently far from the truth. And even mainstream documentaries are reporting that, that now, that, you know, only a few, a few thousand people were um, executed. You know, so, so history is, you know, as it says, history is written by those people who win it. And, and the Jews have kind of won history, haven't, haven't they? So they... Everything is seen through the prism of their, their, their sort of ta Talmudic way of looking at things, their, their, their anti-Christian, anti-white uh, perspective on life. So, you, you know, you really have to take much of history with a grain of salt until you really can research it and, you know, look into all the various sources. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we in Christian identity know that even in the Bible it's transcribed that after the crucifixion of Christ, the Jews came to Pilate and Herod and attempted to, you know, erect a conspiracy, essentially trying to rewrite history even then by saying, you know, don't put that he's the king of the Jews, say that he said he's the king of the Jews, and so forth. And on, that ta on the t tail end of what you're saying, a perfect example of that, in my opinion, would probably be the Salem Witch Trials. You know, to hear it in the media and in the horror films and, and movies like Dunwich Horror and so forth, you know, you would think that they're just mass exterminating and it's this hor holocaust of people burning witches. But when you really study it out, it was a handful. It was like 15. That was it. So, well, in a future, yeah. I was just going to say, in a future edition of the show, we'll have a good look at the Spanish Inquisition and uh, we'll, we'll provide links to various books and even a documentary, I think, was put out by the BBC about... Um, how much of it has been grossly, and I mean absolutely grossly exaggerated. So, so, we'll, so we'll have a good look at that, um, you know, uh, in maybe a, a few weeks' time.
That's a good idea, actually. And there's so much more than just the Spanish Inquisitions. There were quite a few of them. And, I mean, if you think about it, even though a lot of these people went under the guise of uh, Catholic or went under the title of Catholic, uh, these were some zealots burning witches at the stake and burning Jews and burning, you know. And so I think it would be a pivotal teaching in a lot of ways because, you know, in a lot of ways the pagan elements can turn around and, you know, defend us as well. And, of course, a lot of it's made worse by movies like Mark of the Devil and so forth where they come along and they portray the Inquisition as this torturous regime. But it's just as you pointed out, history is written by the victor, and the Jew also knows that there's power within rewriting history. A perfect example of that would be Rabbi Samuelson, who we've had on our show. Now, he knows that if he continues to propagate a lie time and time and time and time again, Essentially, 100 years down the line, he could rewrite a little small sect of history, you know. So that's what I think they do. Gee, wouldn't that be a shocker? The Encyclopedia Britannica authored by Pastor Martin Lindstedt. That would make for an interesting read, though. Yeah, you'd have to put in all those words like uh, <laughs> cork-eyed mamzer and so forth, melungeon. <laughs> yes, I, I, I like to say he types in tongues. Yeah. You gotta love it, you know, and and it is interesting how time and time again, when these guys come into the fold, and they design their entire ministry around attacking other people. I've never seen it become a success, and usually a sign of maturity or Christian maturity, at least in the pastoral community, is putting away a lot of names. Sometimes, you know, addressing the behaviors, but actually not addressing the individual, and so. You know, I, I think it's kind of beautiful in a lot of ways because it is God's plan. You know, it's God's plan that Satan should fall. It's God's plan that Eve should partake of this fruit. And in essence, it's also God's plan in a lot of ways that the detractor out there exists. Why do I say that? Because that's my muse. I love it. When they come along with some damnable heresy, it's great for me to go ahead and break it down. That's our duty. Well, where would Star Wars be if there, there was no Darth Vader? I mean, in every great story, you have your protagonist, your hero, and your antagonist, the villain. So, you know, it works, you know, in a microcosmic way and a macrocosmic way. You know, in the larger community, we see the Jews working their evil, and in our smaller community, we see Pastor Martin Lindstedt working his. Yeah, absolutely. It's through defamation. And like we pointed out, and I've pointed out, Satan can't create. A lot of the Judeo-Christians want to come along and say he can, giving him more power of God. But what the devil can do is take that which is already good, like Bertrand Compare or a forum post, and pervert it and pass it off as his own. So time and time again, the devil doesn't really create anything. What he will do is defile it. I think a perfect example of that would be in the terminology Father of Lights or Festival of Lights, because you know, scripturally, Yahweh God is considered a father of lights, but the word or name Lucifer means, you know, the morning star as well. So he's a lesser form of light. He wants to be, you know, a god in a lot of ways. And so the Pharisee within Christian identity, they make the same exact mistake that Satan did. They get lifted up thinking they can judge because Satan's the accuser of the brethren. You know, we're not supposed to be. And once they do that, that's exactly what I discussed this last weekend and the fact that they become numb. And once they're numbed of God, that's a bad position to be in because, you know, it's almost like a protective measure in a lot of ways. But, you know, it's just like Romans, seeing as they don't like to retain God in their knowledge or they keep wanting to harden their heart, God pretty much gets to a point where it's like, okay, that's it. Now, Jeremy, I meant to ask you about your kids celebrating Halloween. Now, obviously, you give them the candy, but you tell them that it's not a particularly... Christian festival. So, so what are what are their views on all of these 
things that they see ki other kids celebrating, but they don't really celebrate. Well, you know, my kids are smart for the most part because I educated them from a really, really young age. And for the most part, now that they're older, you know, now they're actually being able to kind of dabble in some of these holidays like Christmas, Easter, and <laughs> Halloween as well. And so my kids pretty much got to. They didn't go trick-or-treating. They didn't go door-to-door, -door, but they did go to several church fall festivals at churches where we discussed Christ, you know, and there was Christian fellowship and so forth. And, of course, there's a lot of people out there who come along and say, even that's wrong, even that's verboten. And these are the Pharisees who take these little things and they create religions out of them, you know, at, at least in my opinion, because when you, when you get to a point that you're a miser walking around like uh, Mark Downey, perfect example, saying, bah humbug, Christmas is evil, and you're going to hell for celebrating it. I think they miss the spirit behind a lot of it. So what I'm saying is my children know that Halloween is pagan. They've heard all my sermons as, you know, as we've gone along. But they're just overjoyed with the fact that they're able to go to a regular church down the road for the most part, get to fellowship with other kids their age, and get some free cake and pie. Now, are your kids homeschooled? Absolutely. Yep, they're all home birthed, homeschooled, and homemade. Oh, that's that's absolutely wonderful. Now, now it's often said out of the mouth of babes, you know, how kids can sometimes say the the the, the profoundest things and sometimes the wittiest things unknowingly. And that I imagine you, you obviously being brought up in a Christian identist home, they they would know about the importance of um, racial purity and uh, you know keeping their distance from non-whites and uh, all of that sort of thing. But um, they must make some very interesting observations and say some very interesting things when you go out you know, into the highways and byways and they see, you know, um, racially mixed couples and, you know, or, or, or the, the, you know, the multiracial soup that is modern society today. Have they ever said anything in particular that stands out? It's, you know, my kids crack me up sometimes with some of the jokes they'll make, you know. I don't, I don't ever really let my kids go around and, and say a lot of, you know, derogatory things, but for the most part they don't have to because we're relatively separate. Brooks is predominantly 100%, well, probably 90% white. And so, but if you go this way or you go that way, when you get knee-deep in Niggertown, it is quite interesting to see the, the children drive, riding in the back seat reach over and lock their door. It's almost like a natural <laughs> instinct. The, I, I swear oh, to you. Dude, one, that's I a mean, classic. Yeah, for the most part, it's kind of ironic because this whole segregationalist ideal, like when God says, come out from among them and be ye separate, if you look at it, you know, it begins even in childhood. I know how it was for me. I was like the only white boy in my school, the only white boy in my neighborhood other than my brothers. And, you know, growing up in that, I learned to keep separate from the Me Mexicans or learned to keep separate from the Negroes. And so, at least for the most part so far, they already know that it, it's just meant to be separate. I think it's almost like a natural thing. When they go to a function, I've seen it before. And on the other hand, I will say this. There have been numerous times where, without even saying anything, you could take them to a McDonald's and they'll be playing and some Negro will come along and bully them. And I'll see them kind of fight back, and they'll come to me, but they're learning a life lesson that I think is extremely valuable for them in a lot of ways. So I just leave it be, and they learn to keep away from them naturally, instinctively, in a lot of ways. And, of course, they have the added benefit of being homeschooled. If they were in public school, there wouldn't be a chance for them, and at least in a lot of ways down here. 
because my friends my friends children are a perfect example of that they all go to public schools but unfortunately the schools are 80 to 85% negro so even though his daughter is 10 9 or 8 there have been numerous times where you know he sends them to school and negro boys will be sexually harassing his children and that's something I'm glad that my children don't have to deal with, at least here. So what I'm saying is little Negro boys, you know, at least sexually mature long before white boys do. And they'll be trying to hit on your daughters even at eight, nine years old down here. So, Yes, sending your kids to public schools is like um, sending them to, to jail five days a week, isn't it? I mean, it's such a corrupting influence school with all the talk about illicit sex and... Uh, drug taking and violence and inter interracialism i mean it's just a, an absolute shocker so you're doing your kids a, an absolutely wonderful service by um homeschooling them but it's a it's a bit difficult it's a bit harder to um homeschool kids here in australia because you're not not as far as i'm aware you're not permitted to to um homeschool your kids unless you're a qualified teacher well you're actually here in america you're able to homeschool even if you're not, but we have the added benefit of my wife's master's degree. So she can teach in a college. So for the most part, yeah, we have that base covered as well. But I don't really believe here in America, in fact, that was something I was going to point out, that 10 years ago there were 1 million homeschooled children in America. Now there's 10 million. And so it's it's kind of refreshing to me to see a lot of just your mainstream people saying that our education system is flawed and taking that responsibility and of themselves, which in essence, biblically, that is the parents' responsibility to educate their children. And of course, first and foremost, we're supposed to educate them in the law and the word of God so they won't be misled by a lot of these things. Because, yeah, exactly what you point out, the liberal agenda in the public school is not only blatant right there on the surface, a lot of it is what's not said but inferred. Like when they come to campus and they show you how to use drugs under the D.A.R.E. campaign, or when they come and say, here's condoms, practice safe sex. It's not under the guise of actually caring. It's because they want your kids to go out and, and you know, be promiscuous. Now, Jeremy, it's quarter past the top of the hour here. Should we ask for a, if anyone would like to call in? Yeah, if anybody would like to call in, now would be the time to do so. We usually enjoy having callers at the top of the hour, and we've had quite a few colorful characters over the last few weeks. But, of course, we uh, prefer the uh, – I do. I prefer callers who have theological questions or want to share, you know, at least – you know, what Jesus Christ has done for them or any new things that they may have learned. I do believe that there's a, been a huge awakening. While the uh, Sadducee and the Pharisees out there want to play church and sit there and continue slandering and attacking, I've noticed within the last few weeks that a lot of these CI pastors have been bringing forth some really strong teachings. And they say there's a, a song in 1969 called um, Something in the Air by a, a one-hit wonder group called Thunderclap Newman. They talk about how revolution's coming, how there's something in the air and we need to get together sooner or later because the revolution's here. Great song. But um, there really is something in the air, isn't it? You can just feel the move of the Spirit, you know, wanting to bring us all together and uh, to, to unite us. I'm talking about people in Christian identity. And, and I, I think that's, that move is going to get stronger and that voice of the Spirit is going to get louder as we, you know, we, we move further towards um, Yahweh's second coming. 
Yeah, I believe that's really what it boils down to. Is there's really two classes of them. There's the traditionalist, and there's the you know the truth-seeking Christian, the Bible believer, and that's kind of what I mentioned on Sunday's sermon as well. Was the fact that if we're to be Bible-believing Christians, or at least profess that title, then that means if something's presented to ourselves or an error, even because there are errors within Christian identity doctrine, men, men err. That's simply the way God designed us, and. As a movement, I believe we're supposed to address a lot of these errors, you know. And as I've say, stated before, Christian identity is definitely the closest to sola scriptura Christianity, or at least what the Bible teaches verbatim. But, you know, a lot of times, like the Judeo-Christian wants to come along and read the Bible with the bifocals of Judaism and see Jesus Christ as a Jew and, in essence, read themselves into Scripture, so also do a lot of the Pharisees within Christian identity do the same thing. They want to hate so much indiscriminately for no reason or no cause. They want to judge so much that they'll read that into Scripture. And a lot of times that can be just as dangerous, I believe. Jeremy, I'd like to read something from the Amplified Version. It's um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Excellent. And it goes something like this. I therefore, this is Paul speaking, the prisoner for the Lord, appeal to and beg you to walk, lead a, lead a life worthy of the divine calling to which you have been called with behaviour that is a credit to the summons to God's service. Living as becomes you with complete lowliness of mind, humility and meekness, unselfishness, gentleness, mildness, with patience, bearing with one another and making allowances because you love one another. Now, now really, that is, there is so much, I mean, profound, you know, spiritual, uh, you know, uh, meaning in this uh, you, you speak on it for you know you do a whole series of talk talk talks on it but the thing one of the things i really like about this is where it talks about with with behavior that is a credit to the summons to god's service we of, we often call it we're being called to god's service and the, the, the bible does use that term but i like summons even better it's a more powerful term isn't it you know summons yeah. you, you know it's like you know um, you're being summoned to go to court but instead of going to court you're summoned to you know, be with Yahweh, to be one of his children. You know, what, what, a, what a powerful term it is. And also, in, in the second verse, it talks about making allowances because you, one another, you, you love one another. It's so important that we do that in Christian identity, that we make allowances for these, for these differences in doctrine, that we don't go around attacking people simply because they don't believe exactly as we do. And some people get very dogmatic about this, Jeremy. They get really... You know, if you, 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 you preach something a little bit differently to what, to, to what they preach, and they just freak out about it, as if you're committing, committing some great heretical act. When I believe, in my opinion, I believe Yahweh has seen to it that we preach slightly different things, simply because he wants to see how well we can get along when we have differences. I mean, if we all preached exactly the same thing and all believed exactly the same thing, there would be no differences. But he wants his children to learn to get along with each other, not to compromise his gospel in doing it, but to, but, but to show that love that um, Christ had towards, one, you know, towards all of us. You know, it's, imp it's so important that we... We demonstrate that we're prepared to overlook these little glitches in our, um, in our doctrine um, simply because none of us preach the word completely faithfully. None of us has been given a complete revelation of Yahweh's word and we won't get one this side of Yahweh's return. So we have to understand that all of us are preaching something we shouldn't or, or not preaching something we should. I mean, that's a given. So, so it is so important 
that um, you know we, we we start to get along with one another, but we start praying for one another. And even if you disagree vehemently with something another Christian identist is, is preaching, instead of abusing them, instead of you know excoriating them, how about this for an idea? Pray and, and really put some faith in, in, into this prayer that Yahweh will, will correct their incorrect preaching, that Yahweh will, will strengthen their understanding of, of his word. You know, if we all go around doing that for one another, then I really can't see Yahweh not responding to a prayer like that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you actually brought that up as well, because in Ephesians 4, much later, he uh, he says, Paul says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And so Paul doesn't have to come along and say, don't use the F word, don't use this word. He basically sums it all up by saying, no corrupt communication. And what should be put in its place is words that are edifying. And that's the thing I think a lot of people miss, is we're supposed to upbraid each other. If we walk around attacking each other or saying this person's got black hair and brown eyes or whatever, he's not white. You know, that's pretty grievous sin in a lot of ways, because for all intents and purposes, especially in the writings of Paul, as we've covered in numerous, you know, spiritual gift series and so forth, Paul's always calling for unity, and that's the whole key. We need to be unified in a lot of ways. That's not universalism, and that's not saying that we should accept the no devils in the camp and so forth. But, you know, when it comes to something minor, you know, uh, people do that, and they want to go out there and, and spend their entire t time attacking so-and-so. Or uh, One thing I've noticed is I'll say one thing, and they'll come along in, in their little audio programs, and they'll take what I say out of context. They'll clip that little part, and then they'll post it up on the Internet and go on Nimbusters and say, I said something I'm not. And, in fact, I did that purposely on this Sunday's pulpit sermon where I put a little reference in there that I know they're going to go ahead and use to say that I'm trying to say that the Indians or Cher you know, Cherokees and all these people are Israelites. I've never even suggested as such. But it's kind of ironic how the enemies will come along and do just that. And our enemies are always the ones that couldn't even abide in unity for a long time. You know, They're provocateurs. So a lot of times wherever they go, they provoke people to want to beat them into the dirt. Now, Jeremy, have we got time for me to get into the Tinley Park Five? I believe we do. Sure, absolutely. And again, before before uh, Obadiah goes into that, if there is any caller that wants to call in or and so forth and has a serious question or wants to sit there and ask about Olga, you know, please do so at this time. But go right ahead, brother. I should say that Olga is Marty's younger brother. <laughs> yeah, Amy Rose, right? Yeah, exactly, Mister Amy. That's Rose. right. Yeah. Amy Rose. Where, where would we be without Amy Rose? Rhymes with hose. Um, <laughs> earlier this year, some months ago, a, um, a group of white racialists were having, a, I think they, they came under the banner of the Illinois, Illinois European Heritage Association, from memory, don't quote me on that, but it was a group of white racialists anyway. They're having a nice quiet dinner, law-abiding citizens, um, uh, in the Tinley Park restaurant in, in Illinois when 18 people burst in, anti-racist, supposedly, um, wearing hoods and masks and started hoeing into them, started beating up on them, and also some patrons in the restaurant. Now, five of these um, scumbags were caught and charged with assault, and they became known as the, the Tinley Park Five. Now, most people listening to the show probably have seen a, a photo of the Tinley Park Five. It, it, it's, five it's a group shot of five mugshots. There's three on top and two on, on the bottom. 
And when I first saw these, these images, the, the, the photo of the, the, the mug shots, my initial reaction was, these guys aren't they anti-racist, they're just common criminals, they just like street thugs. Because none of them really look like any of your, your stereotypical anti-racists. And Jeremy, if I were to ask you, you know, to, to give me a, a, a physical description of the stereotypical anti-racist, I'm sure it'd be something along the lines of emaciated, scrawny, faggy-looking twerp. You know, the kind of guy you see marching in one of those pro-abortion rallies and one of those um, gay rights rallies. I mean, these guys look really nothing like that kind, those kind of, a, kind of guys. I, I mean, they look like... Um, well, well, if it wasn't for the fact that they, they, they have hair, they, they look like your, your, your classic skinheads. I mean, these guys you know, look fairly tough and they could deliver a, a, a fairly powerful punch. So I don't believe that these guys are really, even though they come under the banner, of, even though they call themselves, um, they belong to an organisation called ARA, which stands for Anti-Racist Action. They wear all the T-shirts and that. I, I don't think these guys are... A, a genuine anti-racist at all. Uh, it says in the Protocols of Zion that, um, that what the Jews were, were going to do were to hire the scum of the earth um, to, to, to attack whites and to you know, really, really make life difficult for, for whites. And I think these people are perfect examples of that. And I mean, uh, w another reason that leads me to believe this, Jeremy, is that three of the guys are all brothers. They're the, they're the three mugshots on top, uh, at the top of the image, top of the photo you see um, that... That, that, that has been posted on a number of um, uh, newspaper, newspaper websites and, not, and, and a number of um, white nationalist blogs and forums. So three of these guys are anti-racist. So we're, all, we're supposed to believe that all three um, just happen to be anti-racist. Now, I can believe that one of them might be, and two at a, you know, at a real stretch, but all three... Not only that, there's quite, a bit, there's quite an age difference between all three of these blokes. Uh, the youngest is 20, the next eldest is 23, and the eldest is 33 years of age. So we have a span of 13 years between the youngest and the eldest. And we're supposed, supposed to believe that all of these guys are just so, so rabidly anti-racist that they're prepared to you know, risk going to jail to, to you know, a, a, a attack these law-abiding white racialists. Um, Another thing that leads me to believe that all isn't as it appears here is because one of the guys, the eldest, Jason Sutherland, they're the Sutherland brothers, um, he, he has a criminal record. He was um, charged and convicted with burglary and also um, one of the younger brothers also has a, a conviction for uh, driving under the influence. So, uh, but, but the plot thickens even further. Apparently they all care for their invalid father. They're his sole carers, I'm led to believe. So, so not only are they three brothers who, um, you know, for some odd reason, all have, just happen to be anti-racist, but they all have a father who they, um, they care for. So we're supposed to believe that all three of these guys, despite the age difference and despite the fact that there's three of them, they, they all one day decided that they'd race into this restaurant, risk getting, risk getting uh, arrested, you know, despite the fact that they were wearing disguises and they were with uh, 15 other people. I mean, there, were, there, there was still a very real chance that they'd be arrested, and indeed they were. So we're supposed to believe that they ran into the restaurant to attack these people um, and, and were quite prepared to, to risk going to jail and also to risk leaving their father on his lonesome, having to, do, having to fend for himself. So, you know, what is wrong with this picture, folks? So uh, what I think happened here, Jeremy, is that um, while, while it's highly, and I mean highly unlikely, that these guys are genuine anti-racists, I don't believe that for one minute, 
it is likely that they could all be criminals. I mean, you often see brothers who, you know, all, all go into crime together. That, that's not a, an uncommon phenomenon. So, so I think what's happened is somewhere in the not-too-distant past, these scumbags have committed a, a crime, a fairly serious crime, and they were, they were facing some serious jail time. But um, sometime between their being charged with this crime, somebody approached them. Now, I don't know whether it was somebody from the government or somebody who works in the... Um, in the, uh, the legal side of things, but uh, we'll, we'll just call this person a dog agent. This dog, dog agent said to the Sutherland brothers, look, um, you know, you're facing some serious jail time here. How about that we, we pretend that this crime never occurred, but you have to do something for us. You have to, you have to, protect, you have to join this organisation, this anti-racist organisation, and whenever we want you to cause a bit of trouble for for white racists, you, you, you'll get involved in that situation. And if you go to jail, we'll make sure, we'll make sure that you don't, get, don't go in there for too long and we'll also look after your father for you. So that, that's what I think. Now, I know that's kind of speculation on my part, wild speculation some people might think. But um, I, I think there's a very real chance of something like that um, happening or, or, or has happened. And, you know, people might argue, they might say, well, Obi, what difference does it make if these guys are anti-racist or if they're, they're just criminals? Well, well, I think it makes all the difference in the world because whenever you read one of these reports about um, so-called anti-racists attacking white racists, there's always that subtext, there's always that implication that even though the, you know, the evil anti-racists shouldn't have really done what they did, that... There's always that implied thing that, um, you know, the, the white racists really had it coming to them, you know, because they want to stuff Jews in ovens and go around hanging blacks and doing all these terrible things. You know, there's always that, that, that sort of implication there. And, and I, think, I think that um, not only does Zog want whites, whites to know that if they, if they, they gather like this, they're, they're going to be beaten up, they're going to be attacked, but I also think that the reason Zog pays these people to, to attack white racial, racialists is, is that they, um, they want to give the public, you know, average Joe Lemming, the, the idea that there's this huge groundswell of, of anti-racist sentiment in the community and that all of these white people, because the, the Tinley Park Five are, are indeed white, all of these white people, you know, are up in arms about all of these evil white races. So they want to give the public the impression that, um, that uh, the, the, the public at large is really against white races, when in fact the public isn't. Um, the, uh, the public is, you know, even the liberal public is by default racist at heart. I mean, we're born racist, let's face it. And I think that, that Zog really wants people... Uh, doesn't want it getting out that they've paid these people to, to attack white racialists because then people might start thinking to themselves, well, why, do, why do, do these people have to be paid to attack right, white racists? You know, why, why don't they just do it off their own bat? I mean, you know, I thought that, um, you know, all, all whites in general were against racism where it seems like the opposite is true. They're, they're paying these, these people. So I think, you know, the, the Tinley Park Five aren't anti-racist. You know, anti-racist, my backside. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, the <clears throat> level of deception when it comes to a lot of the government officers, 
it's not even funny. I mean, in American media, time and time again, we see this aspect of someone coming along and turning state's evidence. Susan Atkins is a perfect example of that, you know, who turns state evidence to save their own skin, and they're suddenly recognized as some hero for doing so, or being a narc, or, or any of these things. And it's good that you bring that up as well, because something I've noticed, at least from the things I've attended or I've seen online, or even the Knoxville rally, when it comes down to it, the media always portrays the Aryan nations as being a militant, as being violent, and being all these things, when in reality, it's usually always the other way around. If you look at the arrests, behind a lot of these conventions, they're usually always the anti-racists that end up getting in trouble. And so I wouldn't be surprised at all because through, yeah, exactly what you're saying, through the media, they love conditioning our girls to think that it's okay to bed down with Negroes. They love conditioning our, our boys to say that it's okay to be gay and experiment and so forth. And, uh, and, and that's only done through the media. I say that because here in Brooks and, and everywhere I've lived, even in Los Angeles, everywhere I've gone has been racist. It was racist in the sandbox. It's most definitely racist in the prisons and jails. And it's usually pretty racist and separate you know, in the job sector when lunch break hits and the Negroes go to their side and the whites go to theirs. But I wouldn't be surprised at all considering that a lot of these Jews love to burn down their own synagogues to garner sympathy and support for themselves. Because what you're saying makes sense to me, because that's exactly what they propagate through their media time and time again, is that the general consensus of whites, or at least what it should be, is always having you know, a horrible you know, being opposed to anybody who's racist. And I've seen it transcend even in the Judeo-Christian church where they'll come along and say, hey, God's more tolerant of a homosexual, a whoremonger, or a drug user than he is someone who is racist. And so that makes perfect sense to me. I wouldn't be surprised at all. I think, I think the enemy attracts or goes to a lot more people than we'd even be willing to admit. You know, the enemy's never come to me and offered me anything, but I also know that I have, you know, like any Christian identity power, you have the ability to fall. You have the ability to work with them because you think it might save your skin or do something like that. But when you do, you end up like Hal Turner. And Hal Turner's a, a prime example of that, you know, of saying, hey, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and smoke out some of these violent people, you know. Well, they're not violent. That's the whole point. At the Knoxville rally, they were just speaking and exercising their First Amendment right. And the anti-racists were going around stripping down naked and screaming and, and getting out of control, and the riot cops had to put them in the paddy wagon. Because the one thing that the Jews don't want people to know is that um, the average white person is racist and enjoys the, the company of white people and doesn't want to, don't want to be around um, non-whites. And... Uh, you know, uh, if it ever got out that they were actually paying these people to attack uh, white racists, I, I mean, the, the whole Jewish house of cards, as far as, you know, this huge groundswell of, uh, uh, you know, anti-racist sentiment in the community would just completely fall apart. I mean, I, I don't believe there, there, there is any such thing. And I think it's important as white nationalists that we label these people correctly, that we don't go around calling them anti-racist when they're not. I mean, it, and, and I, I just ask people, do a, a Google image search, search of ten, the Tinley Park Five. I mean, you look at these people, they don't look like anti-racists at all. They look like just common street thugs. And that is exactly what they are. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. And that's, the, that's how they'll do it. The, the, the enemy will drop to almost untold levels of deception when it comes down to it. And I, I think, you know, I think that happens a lot more than you think. It's like... 
kind of like Alex Linder, I'm reminded of at the Knoxville rally. He was invited by Ed, Ed Butler, I believe, or, or the Christian Identity Mission right there in Knoxville. It was a Christian Identity put-together event. You know, I'm not saying he's a fed or anything, but he's hopping around screaming nigger, nigger, nigger. Now, I do believe, for the most part, the enemy, at least through their media you see it, they always focus on these brain-dead idiots. They always focus on the most inbred, toothless hillbilly that they possibly can, can, for example, Rabbi Samuelson, and say this person typifies American racism. When, quote-unquote, American racism is in the upper echelons of even you know colleges and universities, even the liberals, like you pointed out, who want to believe in their house of cards, really, when, at the end of the day, they go and live in their ivory towers and tell everybody else they need to live in the ghetto. Uh, what's further interesting about this um, particular uh, incident that happened is that two of the, the white racialists ended up being arrested as well, but not for, not for attacking the, the anti-racists or the alleged anti-racists, but for one of them had a, a weapons violation charge uh, uh, pending against him, and another one um, had, uh, apparently had a charge of being in possession of child pornography. How convenient. Well, the, the guy, the, the alleged pedophile, was a guy called Stephen Spear. So isn't it odd that, um, you know, in, in, in this peace, peaceable, peaceable group of people, you know, the Illinois European Heritage Association, there just happened to be a guy with, gun, with a gun violation charge and just, there just happened to be a guy who uh, with a, you know, charged with pretty much pedophilia and possession of child porn, pornography. So these guys just happened to be there. At the time, you know, what, what's the bet that these people were plans just to make, make the white racialists look bad? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and they do that I don't know how many times, yeah, I believe, because, you know, it is, it's all about image. And if you, if you go back to Kings and the Chronicles and so forth, you, you know, one of, I believe, one of the main powers that the devil had was through imagery. They would assemble under one ensign. And in our modern era that we live in today, it's mostly done through the television and through the television's prodding, you know, so many white children are inundated with the belief, or at least the guilt conscious, the white man's guilt conscious, that they should be ashamed to be white because somehow or another they're responsible for every hanging and and every every lynching that has ever been. But in reality, it's the exact opposite. And And I'll go on record right now and tell you, living in Atlanta, Negroes are more racist than whites. And they're open about it. And through the media, they'll come along and say, well, it's okay to be La Raza and show respect for, for Hispanic heritage, and it's okay to be a Negro and have Black Power Month or Black History Month. But absolutely under no circumstances can you show any pride in being white. So, you know, the agent provocateurs are, are that way. And I've noticed in the media it's always that. They don't ever come to me and say, hey, we want to do an interview with you on 60 Minutes. No, of course not. They're going to go for someone like August Christ or someone like Marty Lindsay who can't even speak. And by having... <laughs> that's true. Can't even chew. Um, but, um, by having those two guys there, it kind of shores up the notion that, uh, of how evil and wicked and dastardly these, these white racialists are. Because, you know, even though that they, they were the ones being attacked, there was a, you know, somebody on a guns violation charge there and somebody, you know, who was a an alleged pedophile amongst them. So it really sort of, you know, fuels that stereotypical notion of just how evil and horrible white racialists are. Yeah, and carrying even over further than that, I mean, we should point out that even though Hal Turner is a Fed informant, he's supposedly sitting, well, he's free now, but he went to jail for a long time 
as did Bill White, based on, you know, outing people, putting their address on the Internet and so forth. But it should be pointed out that a lot of these people, like One People's Project and Nikki's Nest and, and you know, Eyes on Hate and a lot of Lloyd Cochran, a lot of these guys have a reputation of doing the same exact thing and i've been on their websites where they're saying hey the aryan nations is holding a rally over here or so and so lives at this particular house go and get them and seemingly they have a get out of jail free card because when hal turner does it or bill white does it well they got a one-way ticket to jail but when an anti-racist does it it's exactly as you pointed out it's almost as if they want to portray the ideal that they're serving a higher moral you know, a guideline, perfect example and glorious bastards, you know. The whole theme of Tarantino's film there was to say, hey, it's okay to kill these people, scalp them. Why? Because they're Nazis. Total kike wet dream is what it was. But that was the underlying uh, thought in that film, I believe. I have to wonder what, you know, did you say the guy's name's Floyd Cochran? Is it Lloyd Cochran or Floyd Cochran? I believe it's Lloyd Cochran, yeah. Actually, I think you're correct. Oh, right. Okay. He, he used to be, I think he was a member of the KKK or some Nazi group or something. Is, is that right? Yeah, and now he goes around to public schools and high schools, and he preaches about the sins of being evil and, and racist, because when he was a Klan leader, yeah, he was walking in darkness. But suddenly, now that he's friends with the Negro, well, he's enlightened, and he's, he's okay. He's kosher approved. Yeah, it's just like that buffoon, that oaf, John Lee Clary, who um, often shows up on Australian shores doing the rounds of high schools and universities. Just what an absolute idiot he is. But I was, I was having a good giggle to, m to myself the other night, Jeremy. I, 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 think one of the, one, I, I was thinking about what's going to happen to these idiots once you know, society collapses. I mean, where are they going to run to? They're not going to go running to blacks and mestizos. And, you know, they're not going to give, you know, they're certainly not going to come running to, to white nationalists. They'll be shot through the head. I mean, they're going to have absolutely nowhere to run, nowhere to turn. Yeah, and that's all, you know, the, the beauty of that, I think, is that the liberal learns that later. They learn that in judgment. They learn that in the day of the rope or when the, the crap hits the fan. But, you know, in a lot of ways, people learn it now. I couldn't even begin to tell you how many white mud sharks down here get with their black boyfriends. You see it in the media. You see it on the court shows. And when their Negro acts Negro, they're really shocked. They're really surprised. They're like, I can't believe I loaned Leroy money and, and, and he didn't pay me back. Or I can't believe he was cheating on me and so forth. And I think a lot of that's through media conditioning because they love portraying you know, Will Smith as alpha male or Danzel Washington and so forth. And, and young girls pick up on that, unfortunately. Well, you know, and you have to wonder about all the idiot wiggers, you know, these young guys that dress up like they're black idols. I mean, what are they going to do when, you know, the, the, the manure hits the, the ventilator? Uh, you know, they're not going to go, go running to, to Harlem to, you know, seek solace and uh, comfort and aid uh, uh, amongst the blacks. I mean, the, these people are just de-rationating themselves, not from society, but from r reality as well, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because as far as wiggerdom, there are so many wiggers at least here on the south south side of Georgia. And when I was working at Caterpillar about two, three years ago, I was working with a young guy who was about 18 years old, and he, he, was, he, he wanted to ride somewhere one time. And I noticed at work that he was one of these guys who started hanging out with the Negroes. Now, in a lot of ways, you know, the separatists like myself could get along with a lot of the, the Negroes, at least on the superficial level, because – you know, a lot of the Rastafarians recognize who the Jew is, and they recognize that race mixing is wrong, so we at least agree to disagree. 
And I warned this kid. I told him. He was like 18 years old. I'm like, dude, if you're hanging out with these particular guys, man, you're going to end up, you know, learning the hard way. And I tried to witness to him just a little bit. And it was really ironic because he didn't want to listen to a thing I said. He's like, oh, no, we're all equal. He had been raised that way. And so what ended up happening is one weekend they were having a party after work, the Negroes were, and they invited the white kid over. The white kid made the mistake of when he pulled up and stepped out of his car of saying, Yo, what's up, my niggas? And all six of them beat his ass to a bloody pulp and left him on the side of the street. And and to make a long story short, a couple weeks later, you know, it was an entirely different story with this kid. All of a sudden then, oh, he was racist. All of a sudden then he kind of understood the concept. But that, in a nutshell, in my opinion, is the fool who goes on his way, can't even recognize, doesn't know there's a snare, doesn't know they're a trap, thinks that beasts are equal to Adam men, and they end up learning in this life that, where, yeah, exactly, where are you going to go? What they learn is you can't even say, what's up, nigga, <laughs> in, a, in a friendly term to them, or you'll get your ass beat because they consider it offensive. So, I mean, it's kind of sad, but I see that analogy happen time and time again. There are so many wiggers down here that when they really have to go into the ghetto or they really go within the perimeter after 10 o'clock at night, they're the first one trying to get, hightail it out of there. Uh, it, it's amazing. I mean, that that would have to be one of the uh, the greatest examples of learning the hard way I've I've ever heard. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love what that story. I mean, <laughs> going into their territory and calling them niggers. I mean, how stupid! How totally separated from your culture, from your 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 roots to to do something like that. The the fact that um, Jewish, you have to hand it to the Jews. I mean, they do their job brilliantly well. The way that they can separate us from, you know, who we are, our posterity, our knowledge of, you know, where we've come from, so that we're prepared to jettison all that and not even acknowledge it and, and, and embrace the completely inferior, you know, just totally, just, yeah, kind of a lifestyle that you, you, you just want to adopt, you know, um, you, know uh, you, you want to become like a nigger and speak like them and talk, you know, and sort of, you know, do those hand gestures like them, wear your pants around your ankles like them and just this total just animalistic lifestyle, you know, that we've been so deracinated from our, our culture and who we are that, we're, that, 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 you know, all a young white guy has, you know, has is to, to, to embrace something completely alien like that. I mean, it's such a tragedy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it begins, I believe, in a lot of ways that you has both bases covered. Because if they can't get the white girls lusting after the Negro, what they'll usually do is get the teenage white girls lusting after someone like Eminem. Now, in my book, a white rapper like Eminem is a nigger. There's no difference between him and someone like Dr. Dre or whatever. But the media wants to perpetuate like they're somehow or another this grace period. And that kind of goes into what I was saying just a moment ago. Here in the South, they portray it as you never call a black person a nigger, but it's almost okay to call them nigga. I'm, I'm serious. And so that's where the kid made the mistake is he hopped out and basically said, yo, what's up, my niggas? Like it was an affectionate term, like he had heard Negroes speak to one another, but never even understanding that a Negro is always going to consider a white man racist. You cut a Negro off down here, it's because you're racist. If a Negro gets caught with pot in his car and goes to jail, you know, that's the white man's fault because the police are racist and so forth. After a while, it gets kind of old that so many Negroes play that race card, you know? I mean, that's going to be one of the, the good things, aspects of... Um 
you know, the, the impending collapse is that people are really going to, it's going to dawn on them real quick smart um, that um, race really does matter. And uh, I, I was listening on the Hal Turner show years ago. He was talking about um, there's this guy in the United States whose job it is to um, teach people, white collar criminals in particular, how to survive in jail. And one of the things this guy says is that the first thing you have to realise before you go in jail is that race is everything. You know, all this BS that you, you, you learn, you know, in, in the liberal media about, you know, it's all being, you know, equal and, you know, standing around holding hands in kumbaya is absolute garbage. And when you, when you, you know, when you work, when you walk through those prison gates, you know, the, just the, the harsh, you know, the harsh blinding light of reality just you know slaps you in the face you know you, you just realize that um you know you, you've been sold a sold a uh, you know a, 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 a lemon and, and a very bitter one at that yeah exactly i mean here i mean i haven't been in jail in over a decade but i will say this when i was in jail here in the south you'd see these young wiggers come to come to the the county you know, they come in on a weekend for some small little charge or whatever. And what was refreshing to me is a lot of times they would come into the jail cell and they would go directly to the Negroes. They'd go upstairs or they'd go over to this little side. And they'd be bumming cigarettes from the Negroes and they'd be hanging out with the Negroes time and time again. And what usually ended up happening is when they would come downstairs and try and get near the Brotherhood or get around the white people, the white people were the ones saying, hey, get your ass back upstairs, you're a nigger lover. You know, and so it is 100% racial in prison because it has to be. You know, that's the thing I think is is kind of opposite. It's like you think about jails and prisons. They're really only designed to make man feel better about putting a criminal somewhere where they, you know, they'll feel safer when they sleep at night. But jail in a nutshell in a lot of ways is just a stripping down of all political correctness and if you're not racist in jail you're going to be a bitch to a negro point in case and that's usually what happens to the wiggers in jail who get turned on by their own race because of a mistake they make like that prime example you could go into county jail but the first thing you should do if you end up having the misfortune of doing that is go to your own if it's not natural instinct you're usually going to be the one fetching coffee for baba or coco you know Yes, um, you know, it, it, it's pretty much that jail's made up of um, black gangs, um, Aryan Brotherhoods and uh, Mestizo gangs. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that always amazes me is, especially growing up in Los Angeles, how the Crips and the Bloods would shoot each other over a color. How the, the Mexicans, the La Rasas, or, the, or V13 wouldn't get along with 235th Street or whatever it was. We'd have Mexicans and Negroes killing people across the street because they considered that that wasn't part of their neighborhood or their barrio. But when you go to jail, that all goes out the door. The Negroes all get along. doesn't matter if they're a crip or a blood. doesn't matter what neighborhood they're, they're from. And so even on that level, you know, the, the gangster mentality, that goes out the window quick when you go to jail because you don't see bloods and crips fighting too much in jail. They're, they're actually banding together to keep away from the Mexicans. And, they, and you know what's funny is the Mexicans are just as racist as the Negroes. They call them mayates and monkeys. And so it is 100%. And, and that's what I'm saying, to deny that natural instinct, that survival instinct that Yahweh puts within you is suicide. I've seen it time and time again. And if it's not suicide in this life leading you down a bad path or into a bad neighborhood that you're not meant to be in, it will eventually 
it will eventually get you there. Time and time again, we see white girls get with Negroes, and what ends up happening is the white man says, I don't want to be with her. She's a nigger lover. She's got black children. And then all of a sudden, that white girl is left with no option but to be passed around the ghetto, and that's what Negroes do to them. That's why after 10, 15 years, a lot of these mudflaps that get with the Negro look like crackheads. They're so worn out. They look like they're 50, 60 years old in their 30s. Yes, well, they're uh, reaping what they've sown, haven't they? Um, now, now, Jeremy, um, we're almost at the top of the second hour. Do we have any calls? Absolutely. If anybody wants to call in, now would be a good time for that. If uh, you're listening or what have you, uh, go ahead and call in. We could discuss whatever you want to, as opposed to the uh, constant gossip that goes along in the movement. I love it. I swear, one of these days, I'm, I'm going to go to the bookstore, B. Dalton or whatever, and be perusing looking for a copy of my book and find a book about me written by Rabbi Samuelson talking about how <laughs> what I did in, in, in my car in the middle of the desert where no one could see me. But he knows because he's got the eyes of God. I love it. That's the well, mindset well, of the speak, rabbi in the first place. Well, speaking of books, um, the first chapter of mine should be out next week. Um, uh, so just uh, finishing off a few things there, have to research a, a few little things there, but I, I think um, uh, certainly the younger set should, should, should like it, and I encourage people to post it where, a link to it wherever they can if they're a member of Stormfront or anything like that. But um, how's Marty's book coming along? What is it, 10,000 Gaylords, you said? Yeah, I believe it's going to be titled 10,000 Gaylords, and it's supposedly going to centre around how, through perhaps alchemy, a man can make... 10 million sock puppets of himself into actual living, breathing golems. Oh, well, with it, so obviously this is a supernatural tale. I, I, I think I'll, you know, I'll have to order that, uh, pre-order that uh, on Amazon. That's going to sell like hotcakes. I think Marty's onto a winner there. You know, you bring up a good point, too, talking about Lloyd Cochran, because I'll say one thing about Christian Identity, having published five books myself. You know, a person would be able to sell more books writing a book dissing a Christian pastor and probably sell more copies than the books that the Christian pastor themselves write. And so my point is is that, you know, mankind has that unfortunate characteristic of wanting to engage in slander. And we see it time and time again where a lot of men, a lot of women, they're in, in relationships with a quote-unquote white nationalist leader, and then all of a sudden they're writing a book. I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if Elijah Strom hasn't written a book yet. Yes, yeah, she was a very... Odd character, wasn't she? I always found it kind of sus that uh, she hooked up with Alex Linder as soon as um, Kevin Alfred Strom was in the clink. Yeah, that was creepy, wasn't it? Yeah, Alex Linder turned right around and made her a moderator of certain parts of the forum. And that's the one thing. I mean, I usually try not to, to engage in too much of the slander or whatever, but one thing I can say about Alex Linder is I've noticed it seems like he'll turn around based on the winds of doctrine or, or however he feels. Back when I was on VNN, before I got banned, which was like five years ago, you know, Bill White was the enemy. Bill White would come to VNN, and I remember distinctively Alex Linder would have an issue with everything ANSWP. And now, today, Alex Linder's publishing Bill White's uh, letters from jail. To me, that's kind of weird, but, you know, how people change, I don't understand it. Y yes, it <laughs> yes the, mind, pardon me, the mind really does boggle when it comes to Alex Linder. He does chop and change. Uh, 
Um, there was a time where he actually allowed people to speak about Christian identity, even though he didn't really like it. He, in fact, he resented it on his forum. Now, now you cannot speak about it, lest you be banned. I mean, you, you're not allowed to call somebody a Jew, but you, you, you know, and, and you're not allowed to call somebody a, um, or you, you're not allowed to talk about Yahweh in any way on his forum. So it's it's really gone downhill. But um, I always found it suspicious that Elisha Strom hooked up with him, and I, I always, you know, now I, I'm I'm not here to say that. Um, Kevin Alfred Strom is innocent of what he was charged with. He, he could well be um, a, a pedophile. So, so don't get me wrong with that score, folks. But uh, I, I, I am by default suspicious when somebody is accused of pedophilia in the movement, Jeremy, because let's face it, if you want to demonise somebody instantly, you know, just add water, then all you have to do is just call them a pedophile. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And my opinion on the whole Kevin Alfred Strom, Elijah Strom thing, you know, the drama that transpired is that, is just like pretty much with every situation, there's his side, her side, and somewhere in the middle is probably the truth. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if he was a pedophile, but for the most part, I don't think he was. I believe that Elijah Strom was, you know, a woman scorned, and when you get a woman scorned against you, the level of damage that they can do to you is untold if they choose to seek that path. Well, most of the evidence that the FBI had to, to convict Strom with was, came by way of her, did it not? Yeah, I believe so. In fact, I believe there was even a point where they went to a Judeo-Christian church to seek counseling if this letter was legit. And Kevin Alfred Strom signed it like a fool. And I believe that that letter ended up destroying him in a lot of ways because essentially it was – even though he may or may not have, who knows, it was worded in a way that alluded to the fact that, yeah, supposedly he had pictures of the Prussian blue twins, you know, photoshopped on on porn actresses and so forth. So who really knows? But, yeah, I, I do agree with you in that aspect. What they'll usually do is judge him with child porn, pedophilia, and or cocaine or some some big level drug like that in fact i love it when the enemy comes and says i don't you know meth meth labs and all this crap i couldn't tell you what meth was to save my life but hey you know if that's what they want to say to use to demonize me have fun with it well i always found it rather suspect that elisha strom was going around flogging that um posting that recording uh, allegedly of um kevin alfred strom confessing to to being into child pornography and I, that always just, you know, didn't, that, that, that just never really sat well with me. And it, it is, you know, it's not unheard of for um, people to doctor recordings so you, you could say anything about somebody. You know, with computer technology and everything, they could have us, you know, confessing to pedophilia, you know, rape or mass murder or something. So, again, I'm not saying the guy's innocent. You know, he was charged and convicted. You know, he could, could well be a, a pedophile. And if he is, he deserves a death penalty as far as I'm concerned. But I think... By default, I, I think we really should be highly suspicious of any charge levelled against a white national, nationalist that, that involves child molestation or possession of child pornography in any way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. The enemy knows, you know, whether it's within Christian identity or even in the media from Hollywood, they know that if they go ahead and present the straw man and attack the straw man, that that person's reputation will pretty much be forever defiled. We saw this in the communist trials in the 40s and 50s, you know, where Hollywood was dragging people in and saying, are you a communist? Are you a communist? And it's quite ironic how a lot of these people, even Fatty Arbuckle from the 30s and the 20s, you know, no one really kind of knows what happened there. But through the media, they destroyed them. 
just by basically saying he's a pedophile, you know, and no one really, I mean, if he did or didn't, I'm just saying, but that's, that's the whole point. The enemy knows that if they come along and they say that, that pretty much the damage is done. It doesn't matter what the person says after that point, because it always looks like an admission of guilt, at least to those who want to demonize people. And that's what I believe in white nationalism is why that's such a, I don't know if it's really that prolific you know, in a lot of ways, some of the people who get charged with pedophilia and statutory sodomy and some, you know, a lot of times I think that maybe they bring it on themselves as well. But, you know, I don't want to be too judgmental. But if you walk around like Rabbi Samuelson saying that you want to geld children and eat their testicles, then they really shouldn't be shocked when the police show up and they're concerned for children. Well, speaking of pedophilia, Jeremy, we seem to have a genuine case of it very wide-ranging case of it in Britain. In fact, it's, I, I've referred to it as the British version of the Franklin cover-up, which was about a, uh, a big pedophile ring in uh, Franklin, Nebraska, that um, went up to the highest echelons of American, uh, the American government, even allegedly the presidency, whereby that they would um, get these kids hooked on drugs and hypnosis and things like that and just, just use them as um, you know, sexual toys of people in power. And we see, it seems to be a similar thing that's occurred in Britain and is still going on there. Uh, and at the central to this is a guy called Jimmy Savile, a Jew. And uh, Savile is no longer with us. In fact, he, before he, um, a few years before he died, he, um, became, he was knighted. He became Jimmy Savile. But, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the, the Puppet Master series of films. And uh, one of the characters, one of the puppets in the Puppet Master was... Um, this skeleton, this guy with a, you know, a, a skull head and this shock of silver hair. Well, Jimmy Savile was a, the flesh and blood version of him. He, he looked almost exactly like him. He had this cadaverous face, these horrible beady eyes and this shock of, I don't know whether it was peroxided hair or if that was his actual hair colour, but uh, it could have been peroxided because he used to work in the, the wrestling industry in Britain for, for many years. And then he became, a, um, he became the, um, the host of a very popular popular music show in, in, in the UK called Top of the Pops. Very popular show. In yeah. fact, if you look at a lot of the old, uh, old um, YouTube clips of glam rock and things like that, that's always from Top of the Pops. But um, he, he is believed to have been a British, Britain's worst pedophile. It's, it's believed that up to and possibly more, greater than 300 children and uh, kids in their early teens were molested by him. Um, and he was molesting people for years, and apparently it was well known. Even the police knew it. Um, there's one, one shocking instance where a, a female policewoman came round to, in, to investigate um, Jimmy Savile, because there's all these, um, you know, um, there was all, all of these reports that he'd been uh, molesting little kids, and uh, she herself was molested. And when she went to the police, when she went back to the police station, um, they, they said, look, well, we can't do anything about it. You know, um, you know he, he's, he's out of bounds. And, and the, reason, the reason he was out of bounds is because he bribed them all. He committed so many acts of pedophilia over the years and was so high up in the, you know, the British um, entertainment industry that all he had to do was pay off these, poli the, these policemen and um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't do anything about him. They wouldn't lift a finger because, of course, if Savile went down for his crimes, that would have to go down too because he, he, he'd rat on them. And you have all these cops going to jail. So there was no way that was going to happen. So for years, Savile partook in this blatant pedophilia. Uh, I, I mean, just to give you an idea just how blatant he was, he, um, he was heavily involved in children's charities. You know, what a shock. 
And one of them was um, for a kid's hospital and he used to work as an orderly there on a voluntary basis. And the matrons used to go around talking, when, whenever Savile was um, you know, doing the rounds, the, the matrons would go around to all the, all the girls and say, look, you know, if Savile comes into your room, come, comes into the ward here, pretend you're asleep and make sure you've got all your clothes on and all your covers on. Because he'd go around touching them up. And this went on for years and years. And, and, and you know, you, you have to sort of sit back aghast at this and just think to yourself, you know, how, how could they allow this to go on? And it all comes down to, Jeremy, white sellouts. You know, Jews only get their power from whites. If whites, you know, didn't accept Jewish bribes and Jewish money, you know, um, these things ne would never have happened. But there was such a, a degree of corruption, even, even the higher-ups, the executives in the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, knew Savile's pedophilia, but did nothing about it. I mean, he'd assault people in the back room, you know, in the... You know, the changing rooms for Top of the Pops, you know, kids would swarm around him and he'd feel them up and in some cases rape them. Um, and he wasn't the only one involved in this, apparently. There, there was this um, orphanage um, way, out, way out in the sticks in, in, in England. Um, and he used to go there and uh, uh, used to molest the children there, rape them, him and this actor called Wilfred Bramble. Now, that might be a familiar name to some people, probably not so much in America, but he used to, be, he used to play the father on the TV series Steptoe and Son. Have you ever heard of Steptoe and Son? No, I don't believe so. Well, Steptoe and Son was remade in the United States in the 70s as a Sanford and Son, except it was done with a black cast. But Sanford ah. and Son is based on Steptoe and Son. And Steptoe and Son was a very, very popular comedy series in Britain. Uh, it started in the 60s and ran to the, to the mid-70s, I think. Very popular show, very well written. And uh, he was a pedophile. Um, oh, oh um, Bramble also played, if you've ever seen the movie A Hard Day's Night, he played Paul's grandfather. Oh, okay, sure, just, I know who that is. Yeah. Yeah, so a real, I, I mean, like Savile, he looked every inch the pedophile he was. Sure. And there was a chilling, there was a chilling account of this girl she was in this orphanage. She had to live in this orphanage with her nine-year-old sister. She was 11-year-old. Her, her sister was nine-year-old. And, 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 Jeremy, could you imagine having to grow up in an orphanage without the love of your parents? I mean, that alone would be bad enough. But trying to defend off a couple of, you know, raving pedophiles from raping you and your sister, uh, imagine just how traumatic that would be for a poor kid. I mean, something like that would just scar you for forever, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't even imagine the level of that because here in America, it's almost like a business. And the sad thing that they don't tell you about a lot of the foster care and adoption agencies and so forth is the sheer amount of abuse and or sexual abuse that goes on within them. But anyway, um, Bramble and uh, Savile raped these poor girls. And, you know, ugh, just the, the mind boggles at just how horrendous, horrific that must have been. I mean, God love them, those poor girls. Your heart just has to go out to them. But, um, you know, uh, and for years, Savile got away with, away with all of this. In fact, he was knighted. You know, the, the, the British public loved him because, of course, the British public had no idea at the time that he was a raving pedophile. And, uh, and of course, you know, people like Gary Glitter, who's been arrested recently on suspicion of um, child molestation. He, he's, he, he is on the British, he's on the British, um, what do they call that list? Um, child molestation list or child abusers list, something like that, you know. So, so he's, uh, he's on that list but, uh, because he, he committed some pedof acts of pedophilia when he, when he used to live in Bangkok or somewhere. 
And uh, he, he raped uh, a number of girls in, in Britain uh, during Glitter. the 1970s. Yeah. From T-Rex? No, no, it's kind, kind of the same thing. Uh, uh, Gary Glitter, he had a hit with Always Yours and um, I Love You, Love. And uh, I used to listen to his records. You know, I used to have his records back in the 70s. He was really popular over here and in the UK and, and even in the United States. He's the one, you know, when you go to some um, sports games, you'll hear that song... Um, Rock and roll, rock and roll. You know that song? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, well, he, he, he performed that. That's a Gary Glitter tune. Oh, okay. So he was a recent, recently arrested on suspicion of committing child, acts of child molestation, but around the grounds of this um, orphanage where, where all of these sexual assaults um, you know, took place, and not only did, I should point out, that not only did Savile and Bramble rape kids there, but also the, the staff. So you have all this institutionalised pedophilia. And the, the police recently found um, evidence, of, found bone fragments, including children's teeth, around, near the property, buried. So, so you know, it, it, it seems that there was even, you know, worse crimes being committed than, you know, the child rape, if, you know, if indeed there are worse crimes. You know, there was child murder being committed there. You know, people covering up the crime. So just the, the, the extent... I mean, even the Prime Minister of England recently had to, had, had to turn around and say, look, you know, this is a terrible thing that's happened. We're going to investigate this thoroughly because, it's, you know, all of these people now are coming forward now that Savile's carked it to say, you know, what a raving pedophile he was. And it seems to reach to just the upper echelons of, you know, br British society. And I wonder, you know, do we have something similar here in the Australia? Because I think no matter what white country you look at, you, you, you're going to find similar situations to this. But... Um, you know, we look at Savile and he died peacefully in his sleep, apparently. You know, he got away with his crimes. You know, we don't believe, we in Christian identity don't believe that he's got away with his crimes. Yahweh, the Bible says, you know, those that offend his little ones, you know, um, it'd be better for them if a millstone was hung around their neck and they were cast into the depths of the sea. I don't believe for one second that, um, you know, Savile's just going to sleep restfully, peacefully for the you know, for eternity. I believe Yahweh's going to raise him up and say, look here, Jimmy, you did some things to my children and I don't take too kindly to that. And I've got a little bit of punishment in store for you, Jimmy. The Bible says what a terrible, terrifying thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. So well, I believe well, Jimmy is going to, um, you know, he, he, he's going to get his come up and sooner or later. Yeah, indeed. There definitely are no unsolved mysteries when it comes to Yahweh God. And I'm glad you brought up that whole quote, because that's not only the Bible's teaching, that's Jesus Christ's teaching. And Jesus basically said, you know, these, these people who harm children, you know, on so many different levels, especially the ones that believe in him, it would have been better that a millstone was tied around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the <laughs> deepest sea. And that's a charge I think a lot of people take very, very lightly, because, I mean, all these horrific crimes aside, even in a lot of ways the liberal trained program and teach your children harmful dogmas or harmful thought processes is kind of falls under that category in a lot of ways. You know, the defilation of that which is innocent and pure is a central pivotal teaching to Talmud, to the Talmud. You think about this, how the enemies of Christian, Christian identity are able to come along and use that 
for example, or even Christendom, because they love through the media saying every priest, Catholic, Protestant, and Christian alike is a pedophile. You know, but all the while in the Talmud it teaches that you know pedophilia with a child, a boy under the age of five, is absolutely fine. They don't want them to know that. And one other point that should, probably should be brought up is in this age of high-speed internet, you can call Microsoft tech support and it'll it'll direct you to India, and some dothead in <laughs> India will is able to control your computer from an entirely different computer country. And so my point with a lot of this is I think we many people, especially high-profile Christian identists or, or people who they consider domestic terrorists, need to take control of their computers because it's just as easy as the enemies could come along through your high-speed internet, which is usually always on through a LAN or, or DSL or whatever else, and put child pornography on your computer and go right after you the next day. So that is something that I think, you know, they're able to do and capable to do is to frame their deceit and just to go right on your computer and plan evidence. Yeah, that's a, an excellent point actually. That that there that is a very real danger and I'm sure that it has happened in a number of cases because all they have to do is just come along with a USB stick, plug it into your computer, upload some porn, say, "Look, look at the, the look at the child porn that this this idiot downloaded." Yeah. Absolutely. And so it's a blaring double standard, and I've noticed that with the enemies, at least you know, in their own hypocrisy. They have one standard or one measure of judgment for themselves, and that's your upper echelons, the Jewish blood libel, and the doctors and lawyers and people who kind of comprise that whole cult. And that's a real thing. Even though it was immortalized in the film Rosemary's Baby and so forth, a lot of the elements within that are, are real, just as real today, and I think people miss that because for the most part, your average white couple you know in america they have their children in the hospitals they put their children in the public schools you know they inoculate their children with whatever the doctor comes along and says they want to put in them and then they turn around and they're shocked when they grow up to be homosexual through the public schools teaching or they they're shocked when their children become sick because they've been vaccinated and so forth and so it is kind of like a totally different you know, it's a double standard that they have, is what I'm saying, because they can come along and say, "Hey, this pork is kosher," you know, but you can't break the law of God. Well, something I listened to the other day was an outstanding podcast interview, actually. Um, <clears throat> pardon me, that really dovetails with everything we've been talking about today. Excuse me, for a sec. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, uh, it was an interview on on a show called Red Eyes Creation. It's a, a Swedish esoteric kind of podcast. They talk about things like um, you know, UFOs and cryptozoology, Loch Ness Monster and things like that. Anyway, the, the Swedish guy that hosted did a two-hour interview. You can download the first hour for free. The second hour you have to, I think you have to subscribe, you have to pay a fee to be able to download all their second hours. But the first hour was really good and worth listening to. He, he interviewed a guy who worked as a, a military librarian in places like the Presidio in San Francisco. And this guy said that pedophilia, institutionalised pedophilia, and even Satanism is absolutely rife in the American military. And you might think, oh, well, that's, you know, what, what a load of poppycock. But not that long ago, they, uh, America, the American military, military had its first satanic chaplain. I kid you not, a guy, a guy who was there to represent the interests of um, Satanists. I'm not making this up, folks. This is true. A guy called Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. And... and Jeremy, I mean, that sort of thing really is staggering. I mean, the idea that, you know, one nation under God 
is also now one nation under Satan, that they could have somebody representing Satanists in the American military. That's how far, you know, the once great, proud, white and Christian American nation has fallen, you know, having a, a practicing Satan, Satanist in, in the military. And, and Aquino had his, <clears throat> pardon me, he had links to Anton LaVey, the Jewish creator of the Church of Satan, and uh, apparently they had some falling out, and he set, set up his, uh, his own sort of satanic church called um, the Temple of Set, I think it was. Now, Set might, the word Set might ring, the name Set might ring a, a bell with a number of Christian identists, because Set was the, the god that um, the, the Egyptians worshipped at, at the time of the Exodus. So I thought that was very telling. But, um, yeah, Red Ice Creations, if you, if you go to there, just, just type in Red, Red Ice Creations, just Google it, and you'll come across their website, and then just look up their, their podcast, their radio show, and you, you'll find it. You'll have to scroll down a bit, but it's a very fascinating and very enlightening interview. Excellent. Will do. I love checking that stuff out. I mean, you know, the, the devices <laughs> of the lawless one. You know, I think there's a reason why that word subtle is used in Ge in Genesis chapter 3 where it says that the devil, Satan, was more subtle than any beast of the field had created. When you consider that Yahweh God had created, when you consider how subtle, and, you know, here in Atlanta, we're talking very subtle, the beast of the field is, that really kind of gives you a level of the deception that they love. You know, in John chapter 8, verse 44, where Christ says, you know, when the devil speaks a lie, he speaks to his own. And so to us, we know truth, the truth is the word of God, but for a lot of people out there, they accept only the lie is truth. And I think people miss that as well, that just as much as we believe in truth, so they also believe in the lie or the hypocrisy or the justifications that they can come along with. And there's been a lot of people, and tying perfectly into what we're saying here today, this evening, tomorrow is All Saints Day. And All Saints Day, if you know you want to recognize anything on November 1st, what should be recognized is the saints and the people that have come before. And it was no different in the book of Acts when they put Peter in prison and Paul, and they, they gave him 40 stripes, save one, and so forth. You know, the true Christian church is going to be persecuted by the enemies of God. And the sad thing is, is there's a lot of people in CI who say, well, there's no devil, unfortunately misleading the flock. And there's a lot of people in Judeo-Christianity who miss the mark by, by not even understanding that that's what the war is over. Christ clearly thought that the devil has children. John taught that, you know, and we in CI know that. But they miss that part. And they believe, oh, we're all God's children, you know. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. I think the Jews must have tapped into this phone line a connection or something, Jeremy, because I'm getting all beeps. Oh, wow. Yeah, that happened to us a couple weeks ago as well. And then it like It's got all Logan Hunter on us. <laughs> it probably is. I'll tell you about old Logan. He's having a field day in the chat room. He, he, uh, he's definitely a 100% Marty Lindsay enthusiast. And I'm glad to see him over there in that camp. That's really where he belongs if he wants to start coming along and touting Big Thumb and Honey Boo Boo as some type of theology or bashing on Paul. I don't want Paul bashers around me. No, no. Is that the the real Logan Hunter in our chat room, though, or, or one of the variations thereof? Because I, I think there's quite a few var variants of Logan on uh, the Nimbuster board, just like there are variations of Time Lord and Lloyd Davies. And uh, Is that the real deal, Logan Hunter? Oh, probably not. Call in, probably Logan. Not. Call in, Logan, and prove it's you. Call in, Logan. We'll have Go ahead, Logan. I'd like to ask you about demon possession. Yeah. 
yeah, that'd be an interesting topic. So, yeah, Logan, Shane, if you're listening, go ahead and call in and, and stump us with your biblical wisdom because I really love the anti-Paul crowd because I even pointed this out in Sunday's sermon is that a lot of women preachers are a perfect example of that. They come along and they say, oh, the law is done away with because they think that can make them a woman preacher. But Paul said that. That's said in the New Testament. So they throw that part out, and all of a sudden there's this part and that part and this part. And you go to these Methodist churches, you go to these churches that have women preachers, and that's all they get is just substant- nothing, fluff. you know. And they wonder why that is. Well, they've thrown out one verse. They threw out one fundamental part, and that usually leads to throwing out so much more. Well, it really is a sign of the times, isn't it, that uh, we have all this poor bashing? You know, the, just the uh, apostasy and the, you know, the, just the heresy of the, the world we live in today, that people are prepared to just do what the Bible makes them severe warnings against doing and, you know, re, you know excising, you know, literally thousands upon thousands of words from Scripture I mean, gee, so much of the New Testament was written by Paul to, to say that, you know, he isn't uh, anointed by Yahweh when Jesus Christ himself said he was. You know, you're really playing a dangerous game there. So these people are really, they're, they're going to run, you know, the, you know, if they don't repent of what they do and turn, turn about faith, then they're, they're, they're going to be in some serious trouble when Yahweh returns. Yeah. Yeah, and I think another interesting aspect, at least over the last few months of study that's been revealed to me, is the aspect that Paul, probably more so than Jesus Christ, always taught about unity and upbraiding. And, I mean, we've covered three or four verses of that in this evening's study as well. And I believe that's probably why the, you know, the reason why a lot of these, uh, the ones who want to cause dissension, who want to engage in gossip and slander, they have to attack Paul. It's no different than a woman preacher coming along saying Paul didn't mean what he meant. So they attack Paul because Paul says unity, one body, one God. Jesus Christ is the head. They don't like that because that takes away their indiscriminate right to just make up fairy tales about people and call someone a melungeon. <laughs> yes, that's why I have a strict policy against getting into arguments with Christian identists about um, doctrine. I might debate to a little extent, but when it will, to, to a certain extent, but once I, I feel that it's you know, heading towards an argument territory, I, I, I just bow out of it. You know, they, can, they can win the argument as far as I'm concerned. I, I'm just not going to you know, just, just participate in that. You know, it has to end somewhere along the line. We can't wait for other people to do it. You know, we have to take steps ourselves and just say, I'm not going to argue, uh, you know, uh, about it with you. You could be right, I could be wrong. But, you know, you're a brother in the Lord, a sister in the Lord. I love you, you know, according to the, you know, uh, you know I, I, I love you in Christ Jesus' name. You know, I'm not going to call your names or, you know, start um, saying bad things about you. So, you know, if you believe that, Yahweh bless. Amen. Amen. And that's so great that, uh, you know, we've even covered that, and I covered it from the pulpit. You know, Paul says, put away the old man. There should be an outward change. And so what's that say for a lot of people? When he says, put away lying, and that's the words of Paul to the people of Ephesus, and these people just want to lie, you know, that's what they do. I've heard them do it. And what's weird is, just like Christ taught that the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, lies and leaven and all these things really do expand. They'll sit there and one day, you know, I'm, I'm a meth head, and the next day I'm a murderer. And I love it in a lot of ways because plagiarism is the sincerest form of flattery, but it's interesting. There's got to be a reason why they do it, and I think it's because they perceive a threat 
in, in what we're preaching or trying to resurrect or having Pastor Bob on, you know, they don't want to hear the real truth doing. And, and they have no works of their own. That's why they have to go on and take Bertrand Compare. I assure you, if Bertrand Compare was living today, he would rebuke Rabbi Samuelson. No doubt about it. Oh, well, I, I mean, pretty much every Christian... I- <laughs> Pretty much every Christian identity pastor still alive has. I mean, nobody wants anything to do with him. I mean, if that's not a sign that the guy's, you know, just totally, you know, out of his gourd, I don't, and total heretic, I don't know what is. But um, no, no matter how evil you are, there'll always be someone who'll say you're good. So no matter how stupid and how crazy, and, you know, Lindsay can preach all these things about, you know, wanting to torture little children and that, you still get idiots like Logan Hunter and Anchorage activists, you know, saying that, you know, what a wonderful person, you know, uh, what a friend we have in Pastor Martin Lindstedt. So, oh, by the way, Anchorage activists is Zogbuster. So if there's a Zogbuster in the, the chat room, that's Anchorage activist. So um, that, that's his little sock puppet. Oh, yeah, sure. No, he's not in there today. I think he, I don't think he's very much a fan, but it is quite interesting how he loves promoting the uh, one person who all of CI has pretty much rebuked. I mean, it's it's common sense to know that if, if the Catholic Church in the Vatican says you're not Catholic, you're not Catholic. And on the same token, it stands that way in CI. If a majority of CI says this particular person's not, you know, Christian identity, guess what? He's not CI. And so that's the beauty of it, I think, is there's that small clique, but they're never going to go anywhere. They're going to have two, three people, and, and that's the extent of it, and they'll just sit there circle-jerking each other, making bigger and greater lies as they go along. I love it myself. Well, if, I love hearing Pastor well, if you want, talk about my childhood. Well, if you want to discredit Christian identity, you make um, Pastor Martin Lynch said it's public face. Yeah, absolutely. And, that's why and Logan, by the way, the, the legit Logan Hunter or, or Shane Davis actually came into the chat room, and he says he's not going to call into a show run by a Jew mamzer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they always have their little... So, so, so why does he call into Marty's? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what they don't seem to understand. I would love it if there was no one in the chat room, to be honest with you, because it gives me a break from it. 85%, 90% of my downloads come directly from covenantpeoplesministry.org. And I love having this this, um, soapbox to be able to do that. But I'll tell you this, we've never peaked below 43 listeners, ever. And I can prove those stats. I'd love to see Marty Lindsitz. Well, well, Jeremy, even if we had... You know, a thousand listeners or, or only one. The fact is we're preaching Yahweh's word as faithfully as we possibly can. We're not slandering anyone when we're doing it. So, um, you know, ultimately numbers are Yahweh's problem. You know, faithfulness and obedience, as we looked, looked at in the story of, um, of Jeremiah a few weeks back, um, you know, obedience is our problem and, and results are Yahweh's. That's what it all boils down to in the end. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Even the tares have the purpose. And that's, I think, the symbology in Jesus Christ teaching the parable of the tares and the wheat. Because for, you know, sake of a be- for lack of a better term, the sons of God, quote-unquote, the Adamites, Israelites, wanted to go and tear them tares up. They wanted to destroy them. And God was like, no, leave them stay. And I think the point that should be pointed out is tares a weed. It looks like wheat, but what a tear would do is suck trace elements from the soil and essentially leach from the wheat, and that's exactly why they have to be here. If you, you know, if you want to engage in gossip, that's exactly what it's going to do. It's going to take its toll on you, and not only that, you're going to be left with no other option but to leech on other people. And to me, probably the saddest thing when it comes to the small clique of Martin Lindsay and Shane Davis is this, is that if they would really just come out and preach and have works of their own, 
They would gain followers. They wouldn't have to go to chat rooms and post links to try and in a desperation to try and get people to go listen to their show. That to me is pretty sad in a lot of ways because, you know, their whole premise is based on an impossibility. Jesus Christ says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow. Moreover, the voice of a stranger they will not follow. There's the word stranger, no cree, meaning mamzer. It's impossible for the Adamites to follow the voice of a stranger. But in 24 hours a day, seven days a week, these guys are on the Internet saying, oh, i got to warn people, Eli James might be a Jew. They better be working out their own salvation with fear and trembling and not being worried about the splinter in Eli James' eye, but worried about the beam in their own. I'll have to get going in about five or so minutes, Jeremy. But Shane Davis, what, that's Logan's real name, is it? Yeah, yeah. Logan's uh, been outed, I believe, in the last few weeks with his address and a lot of... But really, you know what? They they do it to themselves time and time again. You know, it's just like hearing Lindsay on the News Guy show or you hear a lot of the things these people ramble on. They put their own foot in their own mouth, and that's the beauty of it. It's poetic justice nine times out of ten. They never really realize that it's not a conspiracy that everyone sides with Pastor Visser. It's not a conspiracy. It's that normal people side with normal people. That's how that works. And so no one wants to listen to an aggravated prick. I even brought that up on Sunday morning's pulpit. Be, be angry, but sin not. But you can't always be angry. There's a time for holy hate, but when you walk around always pissed off, nobody wants to be around you. And that's where I think a lot of them miss it, the Spirit of God. You're supposed to be happy and love. I love it when they when they slander me. It, it's, it's so easy for me to forgive, and in me forgiving them, calling me a cork-eyed mamzer, that assures that Yahweh will forgive me of even bigger sins on my own part. It's beautiful the way it all works out. Now, Jeremy, I have to, just going on to a different subject for a second, just before I go, I have to ask you about where you, you do your, your talking when you, when you get online with your computer. Is that in, in, a, in a family room? Can your kids actually hear you preaching? Yeah, a bit of both. It really varies, and it depends. Now, this is nothing like it was in 2006 and seven when we actually had a building for a brief amount of time and actually you know, did that, and that's something that we're striving to get back into. In fact, here in the next two or three months, we're planning on going 100% video to make it easier on myself because I can just do a video and then render the audio out to the website and even to talk to you like I do normally. But for the most part, yes, I have a home office that is now being converted over to incorporate my pulpit and a majority of other things into it so that we can have a lot of guests. One of the biggest things I've had is that aspect. I get people from Atlanta from even four or five minutes down the road you know, wanting to have fellowship. And now, in the year 2012, it's harder for me to accommodate them. So we're working on fixing that. But my children are always free to listen in or sit there and, and study along, you know, with me. If we well, the, 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 reason I ask, the reason I ask that is because do they ever say anything, in, any, make any interesting comments about your, 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 you know, your, your preaching? Do they ever say, oh, Daddy, what, you said something about the Jews or you said something about Satan or you said some, something about such and such a thing. Do they ever make any sort of comments on, on what you preach? No, oh, all the time. All the time. That's the beauty of a child's mind in a lot of ways. It's a perfect example that would be today. You know, I'm driving to see a friend this afternoon, and I took my boys with me, and it was a great, you know, because it was during the afternoon and it was cutting into homeschool, you know, they transferred all their questions to me. And so when they ask me questions, it's great because I'm able to actually delve into a lot of the deeper truths. And my children are extremely interested in the Bible. And I think that's one thing that, you know, fundamental 
public schools neglect. It's almost illegal to bring up Christianity. It's illegal to carry a Bible in a lot of American schools. And and so, yeah, they often interject and ask about that. In fact, one of the questions that my oldest boy had today was about God's monetary system and the difference between the Federal Reserve and tithing. And I thought it was actually really great, you know, that he would he would ask me about that because it gave me an opportunity to launch into the aspect that, you know, with God, it's giving to him. And the government, the Federal Reserve, wants to come in and, and make a 20 and a 5 different values when in reality they're not even tangible aspects. They're just a piece of paper with the same amount of ink on them. Well, gee, that was a fairly adult question he asked you. How, how old is your, your eldest boy? He is coming up on 10. Oh, really? Yeah. Gee, there's, I tell you what, when I was his age, there's no way I would have asked something like that. I'd be asking you about Donald Duck and, you know, you know Mickey Mouse or something. <laughs> I wouldn't be asking you about the Federal Reserve. So, oh, obviously, their education's coming along, you know, at a cracking pace. That's, that's marvellous. You must be, gee, that must be such a blessing, you know, um, being able to speak to your to your kids and just being in a situation where you're just fellowshipping with Christian identists, you know, 24 7. I, I don't get to fellowship with anyone except your good self, uh, you know, on our, our little podcast of a Wednesday evening. So this is all the fellowship I get. So, uh, oh, you've, you've been wonderfully blessed there. Yeah, we try, I try to focus on it while they're young, too, as well, because I'm, I'm not so foolish as to think that I won't have one or two rebels in the lot. But for the most part, I think there might be one or two prophets in there who actually you know, are going to carry the mantle and continue to preach in my steed because, you know, when I pass, and I kind of, I'm kind of refreshed in that because I wanted that. I, I modeled my whole church after Shepherd's Chapel, and, and Dr. Murray has all three of his sons involved in his ministry. And, and I have to say, honestly, a majority of that is my wife. You know, my kids learn a lot of theological things through me, and it, most of it is in passing just through listening to me preach or rebroadcast or whatever else. They Jeremy, up, if I can just interrupt for a sec, because I'll have to get going in a minute. You, 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 sure. you, you mentioned yeah. about your wife there, and I think one day we should do a, do a, uh, a topic, we'll, we'll call it the hand that rocks the cradle, because you, you've heard of that old saying, the hand that rocks the cradle controls the world, because the power, the immense power that Yahweh has given women in their own special way is something that's neglected. Uh, any discussion of that is neglected in Christian identity more often than not. So I think that's a topic that we should, we should do, you know, uh, you know, in a few weeks' time, perhaps. Yeah, about how, how, how important the job is that uh, Yahweh's given women to do. And yeah. how it's, in its own way, its own way is as important, as glamorous, if I can use that term, as the, the job he's given us to do. Yeah, if not more important. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, because she's a lot more tolerant than I am. You know what I mean? I have my times and my, my positions, but, you know, God really designed a woman for that in a lot of ways. And when you read The Virtuous Woman, which, by the way, is another acrostic in the Bible, but when you read The Virtuous Woman, that's one of the things, you know, she seeketh to the things of her house daily. And that's truly how you can define a, a real virtuous woman, you know. And so in a lot of ways, she's smarter than me. She's got a master's degree. I've got like six months in community college and theology, theology certificates and so forth. But we covered it on on both bases. If you're going to homeschool, you, you, it's good to have, you know, some type of degree behind you. And at the same time, I'm a pastor, so it kind of works out for us. And, and they've learned, I, I under just, yeah, repetition. Uh, I, 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 sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just got to get going in a sec. But um, I, um, I, only, <laughs> I only did year 10 in high school, grade 10. So that gives you an idea of just how academically inclined and intelligent the old uh, over gender bender is but uh, not to worry we we have to make 
make do with what Yahweh's given us. Anyway, Jeremy, I'll have to get going. It's been a great show today. We've covered a, a myriad of topics and really got into the, you know, the meat of the word. So it's, it's been fantastic. So um, I'll say Yahweh bless to you and yours and um, I'll catch you next week, brother. And I'll, I'll get back to you in relation to um, Pastor Bob. Excellent. Thank you, dear brother Obadiah. I'm looking forward to next uh, week's show and hopefully we'll have Pastor Bob on then or, or whenever, as soon as possible. Indeed. Yahweh bless. Bye-bye. Yahweh bless you. Yahweh bless you. And so, dear kinsfolk, as we've covered this evening, again, I'm going to give you a brief overview. All Hallows' Eve is celebrated today, October 31st. All Hallows' Eve is a Christian title because hallowed is a term of reverence. It is a reverence for the harvest. The interjection with the Celtic holiday Samhain with All Hallows' Eve is the paganization of a once Christian holiday. Unfortunately, that's what we know today as Halloween, which is an abbreviated term, Hallows' Even, Hallows' Halloween. That is followed tomorrow by All Saints' Day. That's All Hallows' Day, November 1st, and it is to venerate and or have a time to focus on the saints. Now, as we know, the Bible, and especially Paul, straightforwardly teaches that the saints are the body of Christ. So there have been many saints, again, outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and so forth, including Paul and or St. Paul. So that is a day that we should focus on those who have passed before for their righteousness. Uh, Between All Saints Day and All Souls Day is the Day of the Dead, the Mexican holiday. It has no pertinent bearing on us, but the overview behind that is that many of the heathen nations roundabout focus on the dead. We should point out that Yahweh God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And that is the reason why, if we were to focus tomorrow on All Saints Day, then we should focus on those quote-unquote living saints. We know them as those who will return with Jesus Christ at the second advent. November 2nd is All Souls Day. It has no bearing on us because it is a Roman Catholic tradition and or holiday. But that is the day that they focus on those they believe are in purgatory and do not want to forget their dead. But all of these holidays, dear friends, have a central theme. And that central theme is faith. If you come along and you were to ask your average Judeo-Christian preacher, what is faith? They'd say, well, that's belief, that's this, this is something that we need to have, it's required on the part of the Israelite. But the biblical definition of faith is found in Hebrews chapter 11, and that is written by Paul. It says this, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By it, the elders obtained a good report. So understanding that the elders, meaning the saints, received a good report based on their faith. We should understand, just as Obadiah has pointed out many times in this series and in Spiritual Gifts, that without faith it is impossible to please God. Faith is an outward showing of the fact that we have quote-unquote converted. A perfect example of that is what I covered this weekend in my most recent sermon titled, Being Past Feeling. Understanding that Yahweh God will numb particular people from hearing the truth is the reason why they can do nothing but hear a lie and pass it off as truth. doesn't matter if I've never even given my genealogy. They'd rather listen to a liar just come along and say, well, he admitted to being an Indian. Quite ironic, is it not? Because I've never even said anything about that. But continuing on, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Stopping right there, the Word of God is what framed 
this world. So when people like Russ Walker, a.k.a. Troublemaker, want to come along and say that God is not all-powerful, that he doesn't have the ability to speak the world in existence, that he can only take created elements and pervert them, he is, in essence, putting Yahweh God on the level of a devil. The worlds were framed by the word of God because he said, let it be. Let there be light, let there be animals, and so forth. So that the things which are seen, which were not made of things, which do appear. Understand this, dear kinfolk, get it down, get it in your head, and understand the aspect. The things of Yahweh God, who are created by him, including his Israelite Adamic stock, are able to see Yahweh God in all things, while the liberal is not able to see anything. They believe all these trees that grow and the miracle of birth and pregnancy and so forth are all just happenstance, circumstance, and so forth. But clearly, we can see the fingerprint of Yahweh God in all things. But understanding this, verse 4 in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Stopping right there, what did Abel offer? Abel offered the first lings of his fruits. First and foremost, he gave the first, while Cain would come along and give the sloppy seconds to Yahweh God. That, dear friends, is not an acceptable sacrifice to Yahweh God. But we should point out that Faith led Abel to do as such. Even though he was killed and replaced by Seth, to Yahweh God it was allotted to Abel as righteousness. And Jesus Christ gives a second confirmation of this when he tells the Pharisees much later in the New Testament that they were responsible for all the blood of righteous Abel all the way up to Zechariah. Zechariah, dear friends, was John the Baptist's father. And so, if we are to recognize All Saints Day or All Hallows Day and recognize the saints, perhaps we should look towards those types of saints, people who have died for their faith. But it was faith that caused Abel to offer unto God a more excellent sacrifice. Continuing on, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts that he, being dead, yet speaketh. Continuing on, verse 5, pay close attention, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Now, stopping right there, dear friends, we know that Jesus Christ said, Whosoever believeth in me and follows my word, whoso is obedience, whoso loves me and keeps my commandments, will never taste of death. That is a straightforward charge and a promise made by Jesus Christ to those who believe in him. Do you believe it, dear friends? Because that's what he taught. We may die a spiritual death. We, or we may die even a physical death. But point in case, when we die, meaning our mortal coil separates, we put on immortality. Meaning Jesus Christ's word comes back true. Meaning that you will never taste of death, and Enoch was no different. Enoch walked with God. It should be pointed out. Enoch was a friend of Yahweh God, and that's the reason why he took him, to make latter prophesies for you and I to understand the inner workings of heaven. But also, on that same token, Abel, like Adam and Eve, walked with God. So where is your walk with Jesus Christ, dear friends? Where is your walk with Yahweh God? Because we must walk with him, and without faith it's impossible to please him. What is faith? Once again, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's the asking for something, knowing you'll receive it, but not understanding why. And that's the whole Bible in a nutshell. It is not Yahweh God who comes along and tells you to understand, per se, why he commands a particular thing in his law. It is up to you to obey. Period. Point in case. And in obedience, when we are true, when we follow the law, and when we follow his commandments, all these other things are added to us. 
But time and time again, the godless man wants to come along and say, what are the inner workings of Yahweh God? Enoch was not so. Enoch walked with Yahweh God in the Genesis account, and because of that, he was taken, and not only taken, shown every level of the heavenly abode, meaning the heavenly kingdom that will eventually be yours and I's. So he was translated that he should not taste death. And he was not found because, because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Next verse, most important. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Stopping. Understand it. Without faith, it is impossible. Not hard, but absolutely impossible. What good does it do you to have a knowledge of the law? Once again, if you don't understand the spirit behind the application of that law. So time and time again, we see these Pharisees want to interject within Christian identity and say, you know what, I want to go out and be a divine avenger, and so forth, when Yahweh God is a God of peace in addition to being a God of war. But what God requires of you is faith, not understanding. And that's where Adam and Eve failed. When Yahweh God told them, do not touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die, well, that's exactly what they went for. Mankind prefers darkness over light. And unfortunately, time and time again, we see that, where they would rather go out and say, you know what, let's worship the dead, just as we mentioned, between November 1st and November 2nd. One more verse. By faith, Noah, not being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Now, of course, we know Hebrews chapter 11, dear Ken Spoken, you've heard me cover this before in the two-part series, Faith Hall of Fame. But every single one of these examples had faith. Abraham, prime example of that. When Yahweh God appeared to Abraham in the form of a burning bush and told him, go into this land, okay, then Abraham never mentioned and didn't right. question Yahweh God. He didn't say, why is that? Rather, Abraham turned around and forsook all he had and obeyed not understanding. Same with Lot, same with Enoch. And so it should be pointed out that every single one of these righteous, faithful examples in retrospect were able to look back and understand why. Abraham understood he needed to be in the plains of Mamre to make intercessory prayer for Lot, and in doing that, spared just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of his wicked of the wicked conversation, and so forth. And we must understand that through Lot came the Ammonites and the Moabites. And both of these tribes are abominable and a thorn in Yahweh's side. But what should not be neglected is the aspect that God would have destroyed Lot in Sodom. But he didn't, because Abraham made intercessory prayer. And through making that prayer, Yahweh fudged it just so. But there was always a consequence. There was always a prick in our side. And so today we have the Pharisee, we have the Sadducee, just like the children of Israel of old had the Moabite and the Ammonite, which came through an, inc an incestuous affair between Lot and his two daughters. And so while this evening we were discussing the aspect of pedophilia and so forth becoming rampant in society today, it's nothing new to us, at least. There is nothing new under the sun, and it's transcribed there. And so with that being established, dear kinsfolk, I'll invite you once again to tune in Sunday, 
by swinging by covenantpeoplesministry.org and checking in our forums. There's usually a pulpit sermon there. And if not, we will be back every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Now, as Obadiah pointed out, that is great news. We're going to have Pastor Bob from Nevada, who used to co-host with James Wickstrom. And I feel he'll be a valuable addition to the show if he only comes on once or twice. But perhaps it'll become a regular thing. So until next time, dear friends, thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. This is Pastor Visser once again from the heart of the dirty south, that is Atlanta, Georgia, wishing you and yours great studies, war for Christ. Amen. <laughs>